Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen bei einer weiteren Welcome to another session of Corona Investigative Committee, session number 109, Breathing a Summer's Day, an homage to Robert Musil, who was an who is an Austrian author who writes the most beautiful German that I have ever read in my life. I have uh, consumed it all and I'd like to recommend him. There is uh, a number of good books, uh, Man Without Characteristics, amongst others, and that's where I took this from. And I want to read out what um, is from this book. And it tells us that he does very nice things. Um, if there is sense to uh, reality, opportunity has to make sense as well. It's uh, not uh, that what should have done or should happen or may happen. And if you explain anything to be, you think it could be different. And this way, the sense could be made out of what you can see and what you can think and not take more things important that are than that are not. I think this is a very good um, view of today. Um, creating reality as we needed and the characteristics of us people um, thinking the possible and the impossible allows us to create the impossible and i think the finding to be driven forward about what is and about what could be is one of our most prominent tasks Rainer, how about you well we have an eventful week behind us. Maybe we should mention at the very beginning that together with uh, Basis Party, you, uh, Martin Corbyn and myself and others have developed a press uh, release on the unheard of uh, approach uh, of the um, uh, state prosecutor of the city of Göttingen against me. Um, rumor has it that there is a uh, fine uh, that was issued against me of 18,000 euro, but the only sources are the um, Rainbow Press in Göttingen um, by an editor who is um, well known, infamous for uh, telling nonsense and a lawyer from the city of Würzburg, who, just like the Rainbow Press in Göttingen, has hatched out this tactic together with the state prosecutor. Maybe there's only a leak with the state prosecution in Göttingen, but by now all the world knows that German state prosecutors, even according to the uh, in, in the view of the um, European uh, Court of Justice are so little independent that they are not allowed to issue international arrest warrants nor execute them because with German public prosecutors there's always a, a suspicion that there is a, an instruction by a politician, well, prosecute this person, don't prosecute that person, so that is apparently the way German prosecutors work. 
And this is what uh, this chaotic thing in Göttingen is uh, going. I, uh, I'm not from the city of Göttingen. I happen to live there. I am from the city of Bremen originally. I never understood them really there. But it is frightening to see how obviously public prosecutors cooperate with those people who have been responsible in Germany, and this uh, lawyer is one of them in Würzburg, but also this uh, lady, this editor in uh, Göttingen, who have been responsible for the extremely destructive and extremely um, negative so-called anti-corona measures were pushed. The article she wrote uh, says a lot of nonsense. I um, have been linked to um, the people who are called Querdenker uh, in Germany, the people who think across purposes, basically. Um, they work in parallel. I don't have any links to them. I, I don't, I'm not opposed to them. But what they claim there isn't true. It is also claimed that I said uh, that Hitler didn't start the Second World War or uh, the Holocaust and that uh, American oligarchs are behind it. And I never said that. What I said was, based on what we heard from our experts here, was that Hitler was massively supported by Anglo-American oligarchs. Some uh, viewers may, may remember this, that both the First and Second World War was financed by uh, these very people, that Hitler was supported by them, Russia was supported by them as well, because these people always uh, support both sides, because that's how you make most money. But we won't go into detail here, because we don't know what any uh, warrant that may have been uh, issued um, um, that uh, the Rainbow Press and the public prosecutor and this uh, um, lawyer from Würzburg um, hatched out. Um, they also claimed that all my um, cases had been lost. Uh, that is, uh, nothing could be more untrue. They're all still pending. Of course, they make life hard on us because we criticize the corona measures. We um, don't care, though, because we're internationally networked. And there's always some um, uh, predetermined breaking points, uh, for instance, in India or in the US. There's always people who stand up for democracy. So that's all I sh we should say about it, that this is another attack, another attempt to intimidate me which uh, serves to abolish uh, democracy in the context of the Great Reset, replacing it by a totalitarian regime. That seems to be obvious to us, but it reinforces our um, task to fight it, together with other people who are as worried as we are. And uh, in um, keeping with what Professor Desmond said, we have to bring out the truth um, on an hourly basis. We have more truths coming out in the US um, by the hour. The same happens in Germany, even though Germany seems to be a satellite only of this anti-democratic fascistoid um, efforts. It's times where the masks drop. 
Uh, we've heard this. Uh, the Inca tell us that we are in the Pachacuti, the transition of uh, 13,000 years of darkness to 13,000 years of lightness, of light and uh, Light is being brought into the basement of the House of Cards, and many of the rats are leaving the sinking ship. However, we have to turn to something else. We've got a little video on food shortages. Maybe we could play that video. And something came up that I didn't really think about when my dad mentioned it to me. He's worked in the agriculture industry for over 40 years. This year, farmers are being offered 1.5 times the value of their crops to destroy them. They're also being told by the federal government they will not receive subsidies for farming if they refuse to destroy their crops. What does that mean? That means that the farmer cannot afford to provide you with food based upon the taxes the government is levying on him if the government doesn't in turn give him back his tax money to provide you with food kind of a fucked up system, but that's how it works. And, well, they're not going to subsidize them if they don't destroy the crops. They'll pay them more than what it's worth, and they want them to destroy it, and they'll still get their subsidies. They're trying to create a food shortage. We've got eight months to get our own food supply. We're, we're probably going to be facing mass starvation. Is it true that the government is paying farmers to destroy their crops? And the simple answer to that is... Yes, they are. I initially heard about the government paying farmers to destroy their crops. I thought it was a load of bullshit. Well, lo and behold, we received our destruction notice the other day. So basically, there was two options on how to destroy the crop. The government could fly on Agent Orange, or we could manually destroy the crop ourselves. But we put too much blood, sweat, and tears in it to let them destroy it, so we decided to manually do it ourselves. Basically, it said if we used a lawnmower to destroy the crop, we could receive an extra $600 an acre. Something about the low carbon footprint or something. So that's what we're doing. I got my letter yesterday. Um, the letter asking you to destroy some crop. Along with the letter, I had to sign for a certified package, um, which included these these two uh, binders and then, of course, this three-ring binder on how to properly dispose of your crops. And as you can tell, it's on government paper. And as you can tell, um, this here is the affected area in my section of the county, um, closest town. And, of course, you can't run away where you live. So from the county tracks, then they break it down into these individual farm tracks that you have to destroy. And you can see the, the crop or the field. This is the second machine that I dropped off here for the local farmers. Just want to show you a little bit of each drum. You got four of these drums, two on each side. Now you can imagine the damage they can do, not counting the blade, which you can set down. So this will be the first field that we take care of. So all we're going to do is mash everything into the ground. And then I'm going to go pick up some steel plates, lay them across the road, road plates, so we can get the machines over there, start on that farm. So the farmers got paid by the government. I don't understand what it's all about, but they got paid. Now they hired us to come in here and just destroy whatever we can. I don't understand how it all works, but we're already paid for a certain amount of time. You can hear the first machine already running out there. So when you hear them farmers saying they're getting paid to destroy everything, they ain't bullshitting y'all. Y'all better start paying attention. Well, what you saw right there ought to concern you. I was doing exactly what I was told via a letter I got last night in the mail from the Department of Hydrocarbons. 
They said in order to stabilize oil prices, they need a bunch of oil just dumped and not dumped on the market, just dumped on lease roads and field roads and things like that. So I'm hooked up to that oil tank going straight into my truck to get rid of it. Well, I'm going to get fined if I don't get rid of it, they said. So that prompted me to call District Selectman Tony Deloge and, and ask him about this letter. He said he didn't know much about it, but he would suggest that I follow whatever it says. So here we go. You know, these are some serious times right now. Since January, oil prices have been through the roof. I'm seeing more and more farmers on TikTok saying that the government's paying them to kill their fields. Agent Orange, I saw a guy with a lawnmower mowing down beans, getting paid to do it. Uh, they're controlling food. Now they're going to control energy. I, I don't understand why this is going on. But I tell you what, if they control food and they control energy, what freedom do you have left? Man, it missed something. That uh, looks very, very strange. We would like to find out more about this, what's going on. We set up an email address for that, food shortage at Corona minus investigative committee. We'll show it on the screen as well. Um, and you can also uh, contact us at corona-alshos.de if you have first-hand information or know someone who does on this whether this is going on here as well or confirmations from the us or elsewhere if there's people who talk about this to us we'd be happy to get in contact we have seen that in some supermarkets um, we saw empty racks with bread missing What's going on? Where does that shortage come from? Where is the shortage? Is it in the bakering fab factory or in the supply chain? Or is it there and not put on the, sh on the supermarket shelves? Is it natural or uh, is it in the way what we seem to have uh, been suggested in the clip? So, if anybody knows anything, please contact that. Now I'd like to welcome our first guest, Professor Dr. Wallach. We've been in contact with him for a number of times, and he's a psychologist, uh, science theorist, and uh, consultant, and uh, an author and a coach. And he did a study on child mask mandates for children. Uh, what is the carbon dioxide load uh, that has been published as well and summarized and um, disappeared quickly afterwards and then a short story followed and I'm very pleased that Mr. Valach will tell us about it. So what was the origin and what was the outcome of your research so just for to let us know um what uh, caused that uh, uneasiness good afternoon viviana uh, good afternoon uh, to the viewers and everybody's with us here thank you for the invitation and for this opportunity to speak about uh, our project i'm only the person who organized analyzed and published this study the measurements were made by a team of people. It was a year and a half ago, nearly, in uh, at Easter 2021, and 
Um, pretty much uh, precisely a year ago, we published it. It was an experimental measurement with volunteer children between 7 and 16 years old. So the entire um, age range of children who attend school, Dr. Greindl uh, did the measurements. He is a certified uh, expert um, for Austrian courts and an engineer who uh, is routinely contacted by Austrian courts for um, CO2 and methane measurements in uh, enclosed buildings. He was supported by uh, two colleagues who made sure that he did it uh, correctly and two child psychologists or therapists made their practice uh, rooms available in Mülheim where these measurements were made. What we did was pretty simple, really. We took 45 children which we measured up for CO2 without a mask and we uh, attached the measurement tube here so in parallel 90 uh, degrees um, angle to the um, flow of um, respiratory air so that we can measure the CO2 content of the air inhaled and exhaled and um, I have to um, get a bit technical here. Many have criticized our study um, because they uh, either uh, didn't see or didn't understand or ignored one aspect that we mentioned. If we measured the uh, CO2 uh, level inhaled, we didn't do it continuously. Um, it was uh, directed to a pump via a hose and this pump was uh, turned on when you wanted to uh, measure a certain type of air. So if you wanted to measure only the air inhaled, uh, the pump would be uh, turned on upon inhalation. That's important to understand. This device made it possible for uh, separation of inhalation air and exhalation air, or measure both together. So we measured with every single child what happens without a mask, um, inhaled air, exhaled air, mixed air, i.e. inhaled and exhaled air, about three minutes. That's the baseline. So that's what uh, we start on. So we know what is the CO2 content in this air. And then we did it with uh, one type of mask, FFP2, or um, surgical mask. And then we did the same thing uh, again, uh, mixed air, inhaled air, exhaled air. Then we ch uh, changed uh, the mask, inhaled air, exhaled air, mixed air. And then we measured up again at the end. The only thing we changed was that uh, for children, the uh, sequence of the masks was randomly swapped and we uh, monitored for uh, different age groups. So we have 7 to age and um, um, 7 to 10 uh, and over 10, these two age groups. And we made sure that the uh, internal air in this room always had uh, under 2,000 parts per million volume percent uh, carbon dioxide and we did that by airing often enough we had two device uh, two uh, devices and many confused those as well 
One was used for monitoring the um, air, the room air, and the other was for measurement of the um, breathing air. And I can give you the results, uh, results most easily by sharing my screen, if I can do that. Um, so I'm saying, can I share my screen? Well, let me try. Yes, I can. You should be able to see this now, right? Okay, I'll do it uh, quickly here. It's not working here. No, that's not good. I don't want to do it. I I can't call it up, really. Um, let's do it this way. That's big enough. Now what you can see here, so the baseline, we had 0.2 volume percent, so just under 2,000 parts per million. That is the threshold line of the authoritative review of the Federal Environment um, Agency as the upper limit um, established by the agency as a, the upper limit of what is acceptable in 2007. We're a bit above that um, simply because there's always a little bit of air lingering near uh, the nostrils when you inhale and exhale. So uh, we always had uh, 0 0.18, 0 0.19 uh, volume percent in our ambient air. So that's where it starts and the children breathe under the mask and it doesn't make a difference whether they breathe under the surgical mask or the FFP2 uh, mask. You can see that the value immediately jumps to 13,000 parts per million or 1.3%. And the difference between surgical mask and FFP2 mask is not big. These are 95% uh, intervals. That is uh, the range where you statistically expect all the values to uh, wind up. And you can see that doesn't um, overlap. There's no statistical difference, but this is a dramatic difference, of course. You can see that with a naked eye. You don't need statistics for that, but the statistics, of course, um, are very significant. The difference between this 0.2 of volume percent and 1.3 volume percent, or 2,000 parts per million and 13 parts, uh, thousand parts per million uh, carbon dioxide in uh, breathing air is uh, dramatic. You have to see the background air outdoors is about 400 parts per million or 0.04 volume percent. So we can see a significant increase of uh, carbon dioxide after three, or if you look at uh, the whole thing after five minutes. And if you take a look at the distribution per, uh, by age, um, every dot is a child and the average um, CO2 content under the FFP2 mask. And you can see the older the child, the lower the effect. But even where the effect is the lowest, that was a 17 or a 15, sorry, a 15 year old uh, boy. It's still 0.6 volume percent, so it's three times more than the legal limit. And the child uh, that was most affected, it was 2.5 volume percent. That was a young child of seven years. 
and you can see what how this correlation decreases with age. Um, the reason being that the size of the face um, is, of course, uh, bigger uh, with increasing age um, compared to the mask. So these are most important findings. I'll uh, stop sharing the, my screen. So these are our most important findings. And we had uh, published them about a year ago in JAMA Pediatrics. And there was a protest. 14 critical comments were posted. And I didn't uh, feel that this was particularly complicated or uh, exciting because there's always critical comments if anybody publishes anything. And there was nothing where I would have said that uh, they that it was lethal, um, that it pointed out a mistake that we made and uh, didn't consider. Uh, no, it, there were all misunderstandings uh, because the original publication was a uh, research um, paper um, trying to uh, condense it to 600 words. Um, if you try to do that, uh, we only had 600 words uh, for the publication. If you do that, it's very difficult to get the um, information across. This was the upper limit we had. So we couldn't do, uh, say a lot of things. We put it in the uh, schedule then, and many people didn't read it. And I think that was limited to 1,500 or 2,000 words as well. So we couldn't include everything that we could have said that would have been important. So many of these comments were actually misunderstandings. And I was asked at uh, close of business um, of Fridays, uh, 5 p.m. New York Times, to answer the questions. Uh, and I did that. And it was 6 uh, p.m. our time, so it was hours earlier. And the, the Monday uh, after, I got a um, note um, by the editorial office of JAMA that my answer had been discussed and uh, found insufficient, which is why the study had been retracted uh, for methodological problems. That I didn't understand that. They also uh, uh, said they'd received as an additional review, and I require, uh, requested it twice, and I never even got an answer to my uh, mail. And that made it obvious to me that um, this was not a scientific debate, but a, a political thing. So I tried to uh, submit this to um, another journal, a new journal, where I had asked the editors whether they were interested, and they indicated that they did. And um, they uh, restarted the review process with uh, three reviews, two of which was, uh, were positive, and uh, one was extremely critical, and the um, critical one was simply uh, copy and paste for, uh, from a comment on our JAMA um, um, publication. But I suppose that the vote of this uh, reviewer was not to publish it. So the editors gave it the, po the possibility at the time of answering uh, again, which I did. And then two, others reviewer, two other reviewers were brought on board, and one of them was uh, critical again. And so the journal rejected the publication, and that was in September or so of last year. I was a bit frustrated, as you can imagine. Let it uh, go and send it uh, to a, a third journal, and it was again two review rounds with three reviewers. 
one uh, gave an um, useless uh, review which wasn't competent, he didn't read it uh, properly. The other two were very good and the two very good reviews um, required additional explanations and improvements uh, which I provided. Then it went to review again, uh, more requests were made and I um, satisfied them and then finally two weeks ago it was published. So now it's out there finally again after a um, extensive review process in the extended version of the paper and I think that um, through the explanations that we put into the long version now um, shows that the comments um, that were critical were misunderstandings either uh, unintentionally because people hadn't read it properly or intentionally because they wanted to ruin the study. But I don't think this is possible anymore. The data is our data. The measurements are valid. And by now another study has been published that uh, shows the same values um, for uh, children that are similar to ours. And that seems to be um, a confirmation that our, va uh, our data is uh, valid. And uh, if somebody wants to um, contradict us, then they should perform another uh, study and uh, come up with different results uh, rather than just questioning our data. So how quickly was that uh, study removed from the JAMA Pediatrics? It was never uh, taken out. It's still available. It has been viewed about a million uh, times. Uh, there's only a banner underneath it uh, retracted. And that took a week. So you can still uh, find the study on JAMA Pediatrics. I'm not sure in the databases. It's probably listed as retracted on the JAMA website, JAMA Pediatrics. It's still visible, but it took a week. Harold, you said, if I got you right, it there was three attempts. You did made three attempts to publish it. In Bremen, we say three times is uh, Bremen law. That is quite unusual. Have you had this before? Well, I've uh, studied. I studied. I uh, published studies where I had ten um, studies, uh, trial runs, but I never uh, submitted a study that was rejected so fast. Um, with JAMA Pediatrics, it was my first uh, attempt. I thought that I uh, it would be a good idea to to a good journal, and I asked the uh, editor if he's interested. And he said yes. The 600-word version, and it went through three reviewers. And a lot of uh, fact checkers also uh, commented that uh, incorrectly. Um, they said it wasn't reviewed, um, but it was reviewed by three reviewers, plus by Dr. Uh, Ristatis, um, so the publisher, and it went through uh, three cycles and such a study uh, being passed so fast and then retracted uh, after a week. That's something I've never seen before. Now I've uh, published 210 uh, papers, peer-reviewed papers, but that's the first. So it is quite obvious this is under done under political pressure. Yeah, this seems very obvious. Uh, it's quite obvious. Even with the uh, rejected process, the original editors weren't involved. Uh, that was other people who came from the uh, JAMA main office, but I couldn't verify that because they work with, they wrote to me with a generic JAMA address. 
but I uh, thought if the editor found anything, he would be involved, but he wasn't anymore. I uh, contacted him and I asked him for an interview, but he didn't get back. Professor Dr. John Johnides from Stanford University is one of the most quoted scientists worldwide, and his uh, field of expertise uh, he's got many degrees, but one of his fields uh, of expertise is statistics. And he's known for a major number of uh, studies that he found uh, flaws. If we see what you've seen here, uh, in the context with corona, everything's become more clear, he would also come to the conclusion that these uh, Big flaws were no flaws, but intent, because what I take from your uh, sharing is a political influence that is done to water facts that are scientifically proven and get them out of the public discussion. Well, what Ioannidis um, would say on it uh, would be interesting to hear. Um, we have also studied uh, public studies where we analyzed uh, a large number of different studies and we found that less than 6% of medical interventions worldwide since 2008 are uh, supported by good data and he was uh, part of this publication so I'd like to know what he would say on this but I would expect that well, you always have to distinguish between the study level and the meta level. What we have is a, an original study that's one study on one question with one measurement method. Now what you need to do is uh, different studies with different measurement methods, different teams, different settings in order to confirm or falsify this. And that takes you to a meta level where you have maybe three, four, five, six, ten uh, different studies that you can summarize, and then you'd see what actually happens. But there are numerous reviews already dealing with this topic, and they all uh, conclude basically that the um, danger level uh, or potential of these masks is. Uh, real and as well uh, documented because the CO2 uh, levels increase in the mask because there are germs in the masks and the benefit is very poorly uh, documented. Um, but uh, probably Mr. Yunis would uh, see it similarly, but we would ask, have to ask him. It's interesting to see that, especially in the context of corona, so many things are made public of at least attempted and in many cases successful political influence in order to stop real science from being published. In this way, that has not at least been visible. Jonidis, and that's why I contacted him, he talked about many, many mistakes, but now I've just got uh, Judy Mikovic's book, which whom I read, Ending Plagues, where she uh, reports that since 1980, she is in the scientific community in the US and for she's um, worked for everyone who's important including the National Cancer Institute and she reports that since that time she's there it's it's there it's not about 
hearsay what she talks about. She's been through it live and in person that there is pushings around. It's a lot of money in the game. It's data that is being falsified, much of it to do with lots of money, some having to do with the mad uh, behavior of people like Fauci, Robert Gallo, and others who do everything uh, uh, to, in a psychopathic way, to push their fame. For example, by taking study report um, by other people, her mentor is Dr. Frank Rossetti, who has uh, discovered the retroviruses. Robert Gallo picked up on that, although that's not from him. So. At least in the U.S., since the 1980s, there seemed to be an extreme tendency, uh, partly partly founded on money, partly founded on renowned on popularity, to use studies as a means of manipulation to either make money or to become popular. Is that something that you have noted or heard about in Germany, or is that very new to you? No, it's nothing new. Uh, I'd say with the corona crisis, we saw um, an increase of that, but it's always been around. Um, it's only human. Everybody tries to use the methods that they have at their disposal to present themselves in the market as best they can. The farmer um, hides his um, rotten potatoes behind the um, beautiful ones, and uh, the people who buy uh, the potatoes, after all, um, they usually have some uh, foul, uh, some rotten um, piece of fruit in among it. Everybody does that. And in science, it's no different. Um, you try to sell what you can sell as best you can. So I don't really think this is um, unacceptable. Um, but uh, what we have here, everybody does that, really. But what I can see here uh, for the first time is the systematic level of uh, distortion, which is pursued in order to push a single truth, a single narrative, so that uh, politicians can show it as a, a finding of science that knows no alternative. And that is scientific nonsense. Science is never clear-cut. And if it is, after many years, after many, many debates, but not within a year. And so this distraction of the uh, scientific discourse to um, apparently clear uh, truths was something that we have seen at a new level with the uh, coronavirus. I've never seen that in the past. What I had seen uh, that uh, poor studies are published in good journals, and uh, this can be explained by, well, uh, somebody knowing uh, the, journal, the editor of the journal and um, or, Maybe the editor then found a few reviewers who um, turned two blind eyes on this, and that is um, something we've had always. And if you had any uh, knowledge about the subject matter, then you just ignored it, um, and then the study wasn't really discussed much. But uh, that bad studies uh, 
should be published in high-ranking journals without any problems where there is no critical peer reviewer who took a look at it or really turned blind everything on it and that that uh, then uh, is shown as the latest finding in uh, the news media that is a new, um, new dimension, new quality that I've never seen before. It goes beyond. Uh, I remember that we had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. a couple of times with us. I met him as well a couple of times. Um, we are in line, basically, as far as a legal review of the situation is going to be, and probably we'll come together in this, although his approach was to attack um, deliberate prevention of the right action. And you have reviewed his book, The Real Fauci, and this morning I talked to Patrick Wood, he's an economist and geopolitician and historian, globalist criticism, and I talked to him, he said, well, it's so obvious that Fauci, first of all, controls all the money that goes into scientific studies, at least here in the US, and also, second, he controls all the studies himself, themselves, uh, because they have to be published in the important uh, magazines, journals, they have to be uh, um, this has to be done under his consent, but for the public, this show this leads to people dying if the wrong treatment measures are indicated. So instead of uh, using uh, ivermectin, hydrochloroxine, uh, zinc, and others, which are uh, um, used methods of treatment in other countries like India, if you say it's not allowed, instead you have to have the so-called vaccinations, we've got a core problem. The vaccinations are not necessary. We do assume that the virus uh, exists. We all assume this, but it can be treated in a different way. If it can be treated in a different way, the vaccinations are not necessary. And if they are not, and they are still used and applied, and they kill people, which is emerging now as obvious, I would say that this is a, num is a step beyond this, uh, rather than for some political reasons pushing a certain type of treatment. This is about life or death. And according to my legal opinion, that can't be discussed away with. Well, in principle, I would agree with you, but I do believe that the power of Fauci and co is um, overestimated because if um, it was that big, then you wouldn't have to reject um, uh, studies or uh, attack data, etc. The fact that this should happen shows that. Obviously, whatever is happening in the background there isn't powerful enough because the scientific community is extremely diverse and there are many publications. It's not only Lancet, Nature and Science, there are many, many journals and they are being read and the better somebody knows about the scientific context, they will know that what is published in Nature, Science, Lancet, etc. is really the mainstream consensus of uh, the scientific power elite, I would say. And if you want to read something interesting, you have to go to the other journals. 
you have to uh, get information via the databases, what is published about certain things, and then you read a bit uh, offbeat journals as well. And that that's, uh, should be retracted, shows that Fauci and uh, his friends don't control everything. They control a lot, of course, because via this National Institute of Allergic and Infectious Diseases, he probably controls two-thirds or four-fifths of the public monies in the U.S. But don't forget that both in America and in Germany, there are other sources of money, um, both public um, um, sources, such as uh, foundations and uh, private sponsors, who support a lot of things. And there's a lot of research going on just so. Uh, for instance, what we did, I didn't get any money for that. So the um, MFD-SG uh, um, supported this study uh, that was 5,000 euro for Mr. Greiner so he could buy the uh, measurement device and, and pay for his travel expenses. So that shows that you don't depend fully on Fauci and etc. They are powerful, of course, and uh, there is, of course, uh, self-censorship now. Um, something bad happened here. Um, let's not talk about this uh, topic now because it's difficult to publish. That works, of course. And I think that's much more uh, powerful than any direct influence. Maybe that also shows that it's not all that controlled, after all. In the mainstream media, the so-called, we've got the phenomena that uh, there is a uniform voice that we hear. Maybe here, this is uh, by um, own initiative that people take or kind of spin-offs of other research work that there is an interesting topic to be published on as well and that there is enough uh, committed editors and journals who uh, are not fully under control yet but uh, we do see that it um, it is misused uh, in order to push certain research through in other places. And I think it's shocking, as Raina said, that this is about life or death. And if you say that only 6% of the research has shown that uh, this uh, medical intervention um, is uh, of, the, of the drugs or applications, Medication, uh, psychological uh, interventions, psychiatric, um, physiological. So this really uh, refers to all medicine. So that means we are. It's becoming more and more obvious that we are in a situation that what we would need to uh, get better is not offered to us, or often not offered to us. And for particulate interest, funding and monetary interest, we get something else. I think it's much worse, Viviana. I think we people have an action bias. We always believe that um, doing something is best, no matter what happens. If something is weird in the garden, we do something about it. If we have a, a cold, we take some medication. And what's happening here is, and that was published um, in uh, the Journal of Medical uh, Pharmacology, um, it shows that what we do uh, only works rarely. Of course it works. Uh, insulin um, replacement therapy with uh, diabetics, that's something that you want. Uh, accident surgery is something that we need to have, but many of the things that are done uh, are really quite um, shaky. 
and uh, the messages, and that applies above all to all the vaccinations and the poorly um, researched things, it might be better not to do something rather than uh, do something, maybe um, hold and wait rather than do something pointless, and that applies to the masks as well. So now the idea came up that this concept of O to O, that's uh, October to Easter, um, that one should wear masks at all means. That's quite grotesque. That's completely ridiculous. So if you put as a base what you have found out, I'd rather use it in bed as well to protect myself. And then I have this uh, overload of carbon dioxide all the time. Maybe you could comment on the effects of that um, method? Well, what we know from symptomatic studies is that this mask-induced uh, exhaustion uh, syndrome uh, MIES uh, is the abbreviation, um, is, has been discussed a lot. You find it with people who have to work with these masks, be it surgical staff or hospital staff, uh, craftsmen. If they uh, use them too much, it means that our oxygen supply and above all the expiration of um, uh, CO2 is uh, suffers and then we're um, tired, uh, we can't focus well, um, and uh, colleagues of um, from the University of Witten um, have uh, surveyed 29,000 children and their parents, and uh, they found that two-thirds of children, 69%, I believe, say that after such a day uh, in school with masks, uh, they have concentration problems, depression, fatigue, um, that is to do with the fact that uh, carbon dioxide um, in excess is not good for us because um, if uh, that was the case, then there'd be more uh, CO2 in the air. The fact that there's only 0.04% of CO2 in um, ambient air has a biological um, reason. This has evolved over millions of years. We can't uh, abolish it by decree overnight. That's just nonsense, because too much CO2 is not good for us. It takes a long time uh, before it has a physiological impact, before somebody faints or something. That takes a while. But these psychological and subtle physiological problems, such as concentration problems, um, impossibility, uh, capacity to remember things, etc., that's bad enough particularly uh, if there was a single solid proof of efficacy, then we could discuss it. But there is not one solid um, uh, proof. The most solid review was by Jefferson and colleagues in Kochman Library about the efficacy of masks in, uh, with influenza viruses, and their uh, size is similar to coronaviruses. And it shows clearly that they do not stop the transmission of um, uh, the uh, disease only in high-risk uh, context in uh, surgical theaters, etc. You could think about this, but certainly not in community settings, in day-to-day -day work and buses, 
or in a supermarket or whatever. There is no proof for it, but there is good proof that it is uh, um, harmful. Other studies that uh, measured uh, the uh, CO2 level, uh, studies that looked at the germs in there, and uh, we should make large uh, community studies uh, evaluating the damage. Nobody does, because the studies that have been performed were not uh, particularly successful. I can't imagine that somebody wants to perform a study that looks into how damaging this is and then uh, will get money to survey 100,000 people or so. I don't think it's po uh, possible these days, but you can try. But my conclusion is that such mandates are not data-based. It's just nonsense. It's political will and nothing but. And if it is the political will, then we can say it, we can discuss it. But please do not use the word science, because it's not scientifically proven that these masks um, have any benefit. Wow. So, again, a faulty product or unsuitable product for the purpose. And actually, that should be prohibited that uh, children um, harm themselves in the way by putting the mask on or being forced to harm themselves. Uh, actually, the, the government should go up against this and prohibit this if people came up with the idea that they would wear these things um, in the sense of a general prevention. And here we have the contrary going on. We have a massive um, pressure uh, to wear these things, and that especially applies if people are sick and they have other obstructions where it things it would be even more difficult for them to handle this kind of situation. It's a upside down world. Well, I think that if the state does that sort of thing, um, the state commits um, bodily harm. You're the lawyers. We have to evaluate that, though. Yes, and that takes us to the hobby, uh, to the point. We get to this again and again. I um, I've just discussed this this morning, and a couple of um, week months ago, I discussed this with Robert F. Kennedy. It's about the right legal approach. I can very well understand that some people say just uh, attack the vaccinations because they do the damage. Um, we could attack the masks as well because, as you said, there is no <laughs> research. Um, soundly proving that they're effective, but more studies that prove that they are um, dangerous. I think all together has to go into the legal discussion, but in order to uh, prove the intent, or as Martin Schwab would be, the malicious infliction of harm, to be reasoned, we need a discussion on the PCR test, which is has been the crucial tool to generate the cases that didn't exist, cases that were necessary to declare that publication of international concern, and that was needed 
for the so-called vaccinations. Because without that health emergency, there is no way non-tested drugs like we see here, um, not at all tested uh, drugs to be tested as on humans using them as guinea pigs. So the overall picture of the facts have to be put into the legal point. So if I had a uh, 38 special, I would load all five chambers for it. And there is no need, I would say, for any other me measure. It's all fake, and it's why they did it in your face in the Public Health Emergency of International Com. You pronounce the acronym of that fake, by the way. Uh, it's true. And on that basis, uh, we look at all the measures. If I take that away, we have no cases. If we have no cases, we have, and if we don't have cases, we don't have a, a health emergency. And then we have no need for social distancing or any other measures, and by far not the so-called vaccinations. I think the overall chain of the argumentation is what's going to do the trick, and that's what we're driving forward here in the U.S. with the colleagues in Germany. Some cases have been filed. I think none of them have been lost so far. It can happen, yes, surely, that they are kicked out because parts of the legal system seem to be completely corrupt. But that's exactly the problem that Viviane has indirectly just mentioned. Actually, the state, the government should go for it. If it were our government, if it were democratically uh, legisl legislated, and if they were elected by our elections. But that doesn't seem to be the case either. We just have to look back at the Young Global Leaders Program, which has been running exactly uh, producing the politicians since 1992 um, on the long lace, making sure that now it's not the interests of the people, but the in interests of the figures pulling the string behind the scenes are considered. I would like to come up with a brief image now. Who actually funds the WHO? We all think most important is uh, Bill Gates. Now, this kind of true, but just look at who's at the top of the list. That's us. It's the Germans. Germany or what? I can't see it. Yes. Uh, it's Germany. Germany is at the top of the list, yes. yes. Quite clearly. It says Germany here. Among the top 20 uh, contributors to the uh, WHO budget, we're looking at 2020 to 2021, and Germany is by far the biggest contributor. It's 1.2 billion or something. Uh, 1.3 billion nearly. It's a bit blurred. And then we have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, comes second at 751 billion. Then the US, uh, 643, I believe. And then the next is United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. That must be around about uh, 457 or so. And the, in the European Commission with 456. And then Gavi. Next at 433, then Japan, Canada. Next one I can't read. Rotary International, is that possible? Maybe, yes. Then the next one I can't read, then Norway, Saudi Arabia. 
Well, the crucial point is, we are at the top. We, the Germans, are at the top of the list. We are the main manipulators in this game. We are the ones who came up with that PCR test, with that dubious Drosten, and we are the ones who came up with the uh, mRNA vaccines. So if that is not reason enough for saying, we got the main job in clearing that mess. I don't know what else is. Really unbelievable, this situation. Yeah, okay. Harald, okay. are you going to stay with us? Yeah, I can watch uh, for a while, but then I'll go back to the garden. There are more beautiful things than, uh, than Corona. Yeah, that's what you've been recommending all the time. Get away from all that garbage and do go to nature's. That's my motto as well. Harold, thank you for being with us and for supporting us. It was very helpful in many respects. Thank you. Thank you. So, the title Breath of a Summer Day is quite uh, pertinent here. Cool. To English, um, Dr. Paul E. Merrick. He's a physician and former professor of medicine, pulmonary and critical care specialist, and he's also the chairman and founding member of the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, FLCCC Alliance. Good morning, Paul. Hey, Raina, how you doing? Okay, I'm, uh, I'm uh, not very uh, wide awake, but I'm awake enough. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep last night, but I'm, I'm in, in basically in good shape. I should have spent more time in nature, like Harald Weilach just explained to us. He's going to go, go back into his garden and tend to the flowers. <laughs> Well, we're probably in a similar physiological state because I'm also just got up and I don't have a clear head and um, I need to be in nature and just to relax and take it cool. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, we were going to talk about what I was going to talk about, but we never spoke about what I was going to speak about. So what I thought I would do is I put together a short little PowerPoint, which I can go through. And then we can talk any questions you have. Excellent. So, you know, obviously, we know that there have been crimes committed against humanity. I mean, mm -hmm. that there is no question. But I think we have to be careful to charge these evil people with the right crimes, firstly. And then secondly, those on our side of defense must be very careful that we speak the truth and we speak the scientific truth because if we provide false information those on the other side will attack us vigorously and we will lose our credibility so it's yeah. really important we actually focus on the science and the truth mm -hmm. and maybe the last point is that you know i'm obviously involved in all of this and listen to many speakers um, many of them actually have never looked after a COVID patient. And that's very important because COVID is a very unique disease. I've practiced critical care for 35 years. I've never encountered a disease quite like this. It's very difficult to treat. It's very complicated. And by managing these patients, it gives you kind of a unique insight. It's the same way as someone trying to teach someone to fly a plane where they've never flown a plane before. So it's really important that one 
you know, gets a perspective from people who've actually treated this disease. So, you know, with that being said, um, I'm going to try and find my PowerPoint, which is really odd because I can't find it. Hold on. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what's going on with my desktop. Okay, there we go. It wasn't showing up. Okay, I think you, you should be able to see it now. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to put it on slideshow from beginning. Okay, do you see it? Yes, we can see it. So, uh, you know, you know, when I, I, I've been practicing critical care 35 years and I obviously, you know, I led an ICU when COVID came to the US. Uh, the politics are complicated, but really I was involved in maybe the management of over a thousand patients. So that's my perspective. And then obviously I had to quit because of politics. And since then I've been really focusing on the vaccine injured. And I probably, you know, interviewed probably a hundred vaccine injured patients. So that's my current focus. I really have no conflicts of interest, which is important. I, you know, I don't sell anything. I don't do, I mean, I have no, no financial interest with any company. So really I have a few opening statements, which I think are important. So I need to emphasize COVID-19 is a serious disease that's cost the lives of over 20 million patients on this planet and caused devastating social, economic, emotional, and moral suffering. COVID-19 is highly preventable and it's a treatable disease in all the phases. And as we'll briefly review in the last two years, there've been numerous effective therapies that have been discovered. Obviously, the vaccines do not prevent this disease. The vaccines are highly ineffective, they're highly toxic, and there are millions of vaccine-injured patients worldwide. Something that's not really well understood is COVID-19 is a clinical diagnosis. It's a clinical disease. You do not need the PCR or any other test to diagnose COVID. And the problem is we know there are numerous false positives but they're also false negatives. So using COVID, using the PCR is, may have a role in epidemiological studies, but clinically it's a complete waste of time. Prevention and early treatment, they're highly effective agents for the treatment of this disease. Ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, fluvoxamine, melatonin, et cetera. Many of these are repurposed generic or over-the-counter medications. And obviously that this is where the evil forces come into play because their agenda is a vaccine in every arm. And these highly effective repurposed drugs actually provide a serious threat to uh, that, that goal of theirs. In terms of the hospital phase, it's a combination of therapies. Treatment must be started early. And the NIH protocol, i.e. remdesivir, no-dose dexamethasone kills patients. There's no question of doubt, the current treatment protocol in the United States of America kills patients. It does not work. 
So the other thing is people claim, that, you know, what's the big deal about the variants? This, this, uh, you know, they're all the same. That's not true. Having worked in the ICU, I can tell you categorically and definitively that clinically these patients present completely differently. So there's alpha, beta, gamma, there's delta, which I forgot, Omicron. Delta was a vicious virus. It was a vicious virus, much like gamma. So, you know, we started off with alpha and beta and we had some handle on it. Delta was a vicious disease. So there is these, these uh, variants act biologically very different. In, in addition, there are differences in their infectiousness. So, you know, the alpha beta had an R naught of about two. Omicron is about eight or nine, which, which is really close to, to measles. So all, these variants act differently. And people who maintain that, you know, this is of no clinical significance have never treated a COVID patient. Then we have the long haul syndrome, which is treatable. And the long haul syndrome is probably the result of ineffective early treatment. It's a spike protein mediated disease or a spikopathy. And then there's the, you know, vaccine injured patient. And, you know, this is a debilitating disease there are millions of these patients. The physiology is a little bit more complicated because it's due to both the spike protein, the lipid nanoparticle, PEG, graphene oxide, as well as other unknown additives. So those are the main points that I wanted to make. I'll go through the rest of my talk somewhat quickly, and then we can, you know, talk and have questions. So, you know, in terms of, you know, the NIH, and the CDC and the WHO claim they know they know effective early treatments. So obviously this is from the C19 group, and you can see there's a whole host of medications that have been proven beneficial in the early treatment of COVID. So early treatment is absolutely critical, and you know it's been a dereliction of duty. The state agencies have not promoted this, and I just highlighted. Because certain ivermectin, nigella sativa, melatonin, providone iodine, vitamin D. So we know, I mean, and this is based on really good data. As, as we're absolutely aware of, the biggest problem is the vacuum of truth, you know, due to lack of transparency, misinformation, disinformation, nefarious intentions, and censorship. It's very difficult to actually get to the truth. Um, you know, the, the, this is from the BMJ. COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, we must have raw data now. Data should be fully available and available. So there's been complete lack of transparency. So this is a global disaster. The actual numbers we could debate and we can talk about, but you know, according to, to Hopkins, over 6 million deaths and over 500 million cases. You know, some people actually, you know, consider, you know, the economist model that maybe there are over 20 million deaths. So, you know, we don't really know, but just what we can say is millions of people have died. So just to quickly review the virus, you know, this is an RNA virus. It has these very, oopsie, unique globular spike protein which stick out of the cell. And there were about 40 of these spike proteins which stick out of the cell. And the spike protein really is the toxic part of this virus. 
So this is the viral genome, as we know, 30 kilobases. This has this polyprotein, the spike, and some other proteins. So it codes for about 28 proteins, 16 non-structural proteins, four structural proteins, and eight accessory proteins. It is an intriguingly well-designed virus because it is it does really bad shit to the human being. It does really bad stuff. There's nothing good about this virus. And as we know, the spike protein is the is that protein which is so toxic. Uh, its toxicity is truly astonishing. Uh, this is the amino acid sequence. It consists of an S1 and an S2. This is the cleavage site. This is the receptor binding domain. Um, it, it forms this trimeric structure with the S1 and the S2. So the, the interaction between spike and ACE2 is really quite complicated. It goes through a whole number of different phases. There are a number of enzymes, temperus and furin that are involved. And so it, it's a complex process in terms of the virus getting into the cell. And then obviously we have all of these mutations. Uh, this is the, the A3B uh, B variant. So the, the, these variants are heavily mutated. They evade vaccine-induced antibodies and they are spread with high efficiency. So how's the spread? You know, there was all this backwards and forwards story about how it spreads. So we can say that spread by formites doesn't happen and this complete obsession with hand washing and disinfection is probably is absurd. And probably it spreads both by aerosol and droplet spread. So both are important. What is important is the virus replicates in the nasopharynx and binds to the olfactory epithelium. And this becomes very important in the treatment of COVID and the prevention of COVID because we can apply topical antiviral agents into the nodes, which are highly effective in killing the virus. And this is a form of therapy which has been completely ignored, both for the prophylaxis and treatment. Uh, we know, you know, randomized controlled studies in, in India, in the US, show how effective just spraying providon iodine in the nose is treating this disease. Oopsie. Oh my goodness, uh, how that happened. Um, that was fast. <laughs> that was really bad. So let me go back to the beginning and, oh my goodness gracious. I don't know how this happened. Oi, something odd is happening. I don't know how to get rid of this. Let me stop share and let me do that again. Wow, that was weird. I think I was at that slide. Okay, so I'm going to go down. Oh my goodness gracious, this is weird. It's a very dynamic presentation. Okay, so I'm going to do this slowly. I think we were there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I don't know why this is happening. Oh, I'm so sorry. I, I have no idea. 
ah, this is, there's something odd going on. Let me try again. Um, but can you not just, uh, you know, push up that bar and then yeah. exit the slideshow? Slowly. Yeah. No, I'm it's maybe that. working. Okay, there, I, I don't know what happened. Okay, sorry about that. So the other thing is that there's a gradient of ACE2 expression, which is not always recognized. So both ACE2 and, and infectivity, there's this gradient from the nose to the lung. So that's why nasopharyngeal replication is just so important because of the high viral load in the nasopharynx. So what's important, and this distinguishes SARS-CoV-2 from the previous SARS and MERS, is if you look at viral load, so the, and that's it in blue, the viral load actually peaks prior to the onset of symptoms, and then it decreases. So patients are actually most infectious before the onset of symptoms and while they're symptomatic. So it's unlikely that people who are not asymptomatic spread the disease because of the lower viral load. So it seems like the viral load determines the infectivity. So what is not generally recognized, and this is really important, is that there are stages of the disease. So there's the incubation period, the symptomatic phase, the pulmonary phase, and the late phase. So if you look at viral replication, you can see the viral replication is greatest just prior to the onset of symptoms and um, then decreases during the symptomatic phase. You can see that during the symptomatic phase, um, hold on a second, I'm sorry. So you can see that during the symptomatic phase, the viral replication decreases. So this is really important in terms of antiviral. And then the pulmonary phase really is this immune dysregulation related to the viral debris, uh, the cytokine storm, T-cell dysfunction. And so if we look at laboratory tests, and obviously we know the, uh, the, the um, pitfalls of the PCR, but, but the bo bottom line is that the PCR can remain positive for weeks after the virus has disappeared. And this is a really important factor that clinicians and people don't understand. So you can be PCR positive and yet not have active viral replication. And that not all patients actually will PCR convert. And then you can see the antibody response starts about day 10 when really with the disappearance of the virus. So this is somewhat of an important slide because I don't think people understand the significance of the nasopharyngeal swab. That's why this is a clinical disease and that the presence of a PCR does not mean that you are actively infective. And patients can remain PCR for weeks after disappearance of the virus. So this is just a study which I think illustrates this point. This is looking at the cycle threshold and looking at patients who actually have replicative live virus. So you can see that the replicative live virus on those patients who have the lowest cycle threshold, obviously it's the inverse of the log concentration. So those who have the highest PCR concentration likely have replicating virus, but it's, it stops at about day 10.
after the onset of symptoms. So you can see patients can be PCR positive in this slide up to 30 days, and yet they are no longer have active um, replicator virus because basically the PCR is looking at little fragments of RNA. It's not looking at the entire genome or looking at viral replication. So we know that, as we said, the disease goes through a number of stages, you know, fever, cough, and then generally patients actually get, may get better day six or seven, and then they develop shortness of breath and pulmonary symptoms. Now, this time scale was based on the alpha and beta variant. Obviously, with the more recent variants, the time scale has been somewhat contracted. COVID-19 is a multi-system disease. Although the lungs take the biggest hit, it appears to affect most of the organs. Now, there's enormous clinical heterogeneity, which is really important because some people get COVID and it's a mild infection. Others, it's a fatal disease. So there are a number of factors which um, affect the outcome. Firstly, inoculum size. I think it's really important. The size of the inoculum and the viral load has an enormous impact. Secondly, the variant, the genotype. So we obviously know that Omicron behaves very differently to Delta. Um, ACE2 expression, temperance expression, and then the interaction of age, sex, obesity, race, immunotype, vitamin D status, comorbidities, co-reactive, cross-reactive immunity, and unknown, unknown confounders. So it's an enormously heterogeneous disease with you know, enormous confounding issues. We know, for example, that obesity is a major risk factor. We know that male sex is a risk factor. We know at the beginning of the pandemic, age was a major risk factor. So you, one has to actually understand the disease to treat the disease. So this is actually a very good pathoclinical physiological study where they did autopsies. And basically the bottom line is you get endothelial damage an imbalance of both the innate and adaptive immune responses with aberrant macrophage activation. So the key here is aberrant macrophage activation, which plays a central role. And that becomes important because people think this is ARDS, and it's not ARDS. ARDS is a neutrophil-mediated disease. COVID lung disease is a macrophage-mediated disease, and actually it does not cause ARDS. It's called, it causes what's called an organizing pneumonia. The classic features of COVID pneumonia is an organizing pneumonia. And in addition, we know that you get vascular endotheliitis, thrombosis, and angiogenesis related to complement activation and activation of the clotting cascade. So this is a study which I was involved in, which we did in Norfolk, which is quite intriguing. So, you know, obviously the uh, Chinese developed these humanized mice, and it was these humanized mice that they used to test their virus and develop the virus. But there are these humanized mice which actually express the H2 receptor. So in the study, what the investigators did is they injected the full spike protein as well as the S1 segment. And as you can see, it's really the S1 segment of the spike, which is so toxic. Um, it's truly astonishing. So it's not S2, it seems to be 
the S1 segment of the spike, which really carries the enormous toxicity of this virus. So this was a, a review we did on the pathophysiology of you know, COVID-19. It's a little bit outdated maybe, but basically we make the point that this is pulmonary activation syndrome, microvascular endotheliitis and thrombosis, as well as a number of other factors. So this is just a schematic of what happens. You get activation of macrophages, production of a whole host of inflammatory mediators, you get complement activation with this endotheliitis, uh, platelet activation, clotting, and serotonin. So this is an important slide because COVID is like no other disease. When you see this CAT scan, this is COVID. It's very important. This is COVID. No other disease that we possibly know has a CT scan that looks like this and progresses like this. This is not influenza. Influenza does not like, look like this in any shape or form. And really, it has this characteristic pattern of ground glass opacity, which starts peripherally, it gets more extensive, it gets more extensive, you then get consolidation, and then you start getting what's called traction bronchiectasis, you get lung damage, you get lung fibrosis, and eventually lung damage. And unfortunately, what happens is, unchecked, these patients die of respiratory failure due to severe lung injury. Many of them die from single organ failure from completely destroyed lungs. There's no other disease that we know that actually does such a thing. So the management, I'll just talk about it briefly. The bottom line is there, there's no single magic bullet. It's a synergy between a number of drugs. This is a table that we put together or drugs that work and don't work uh, based by the phase of the disease, you know, pre-exposure, symptomatic pulmonary. You can see that ivermectin works across the board. Hydroxychloroquine probably works in pre-exposure in the symptomatic phase. Steroids tend to have a benefit only in the inflammatory phase, maybe harmful pre, you know, uh, prior to that. Paxlovid and Malpurivar are actually a complete joke, and the role of these agents is, is really unclear. So, you know, the treatment is really phase-specific, disease protection, early treatment, hospital treatment, and then there's the post-infection, the long COVID, and the iRecover. You know, we actually have these protocols on our website at the FLCC, the website for anyone interested is flccc.net. So basically, you know, going back to the first slide, you know, what we've done in this slide is just combine those appropriate therapies for the stage of the disease. So you can see the treatment must be phase specific. You can't just have a bland treatment. It depends on the phase of the disease. And obviously remdesivir has no place in the pulmonary phase just because the viruses stop replicating. So just from basic principles to attempt to use remdesivir in the pulmonary phase just makes no sense. And in fact, this is the data from remdesivir and it's there's some very disturbing findings in this meta-analysis. So these are all the published studies looking at remdesivir. So if you look at the two studies done by Gilead, 
These are the two studies done by Gilead. You see that there's a benefit. But when you look at the four independent studies, there's actually a trend to harm, a trend to harm. So how do you explain the difference between these studies? The same drug, same population. The only conclusion is Gilead uh, crooked their data or cheated their data or manipulated their data to achieve what they wanted to achieve. Because the actual truth is that remdesivir slightly increases your risk of dying and significantly increases your risk of kidney failure. Yet 90% of patients hospitalized in the United States of America are treated with remdesivir. So we need to look at ivermectin. So obviously this is very controversial. This is a updated meta-analysis uh, maybe two weeks ago of 83 studies from the ivermeta. This was actually published as a preprint. And you can see that that is, you know, this is a highly effective drug. And even if you exclude those studies which are deemed to be of low quality, so actually you can see these are all the studies, these are the low quality. By removing the low quality studies actually improves the uh, efficacy of this drug. The together and active six trials were not included. In fact, although the, the popular press has called these studies negative, actually they're really positive studies. And both of them, the authors or the investigators committed scientific misconduct and they try to make the study fail. But there's absolutely no question of doubt that ivermectin is one of the most effective drugs for the prevention and treatment of COVID, as well as long COVID and the vaccine injured. So this is where the trouble started. So in about May of 221, the FDA came out with the statement, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, seriously, you'll stop it. The drug can be dangerous and even lethal. So this was really a turning point. So not only did they tweet this and not only did they distribute this, but they sent letters to almost every state agency, every um, health care board in the United States. Uh, they sent this to hospitals. So basically the FDA, who's not in the business of telling doctors how to practice medicine, effectively changed the discussion. Um, and this is obviously illegal because it's false. What they're saying is completely false. And unfortunately, it had a major impact on the use of ivermectin because the American public think this is a toxic horse deworming medicine. And as you probably know, we recently filed suit against the FDA, specifically against this promotional activity of theirs, which is clearly false and illegal and probably um, in the United States resulted in the death of maybe six or 700,000 patients. So they have blood on their hands because it's a highly effective drug for the treatment of SARS-CoV-2, but through their promotional activity and their, their deceit, they've actually manipulated the truth. So this is actually a very interesting slide. And, you know, I testified in New Hampshire, I testified in Tennessee, and 
this is the slide I think that turned the narrative. So this is Vigi Access data. So this is from the WHO's own database. This is the Uppsala Monitoring Center, which is probably the biggest pharmacovigilance database in the world. So if you look at ivermectin, and the reporting is since 1992, so you know over 25 years, they count 25 deaths and 6,000 adverse events. And we think these deaths actually were due to parasitic infection. However, if you look at the COVID-19 vaccines, which we've had less than two years, they themselves, the WHO, acknowledge 19,000 deaths and 3.8 million adverse events. So it's somewhat paradoxical and absurd that the FDA and WHO consider the COVID vaccine safe and effective, while ivermectin is a dangerous horse deworming medicine. Their own data, their own data just does not support this argument. And if you look at Tylenol, you know, and there's probably as many doses of Tylenol as ivermectin, you can see the number of deaths related to Tylenol. So ivermectin actually is one of the safest medications on this planet. And obviously, the SARS-CoV-2 is one of the most dangerous or the most dangerous vaccine ever administered and probably one of the most dangerous or toxic medications ever administered to a human being. So that was um, my quick overview. Sorry about the slide misfunction. I have no idea what happened. Um, so, you know, our goal is to promote the scientific truth. And obviously, there are lots of people who are suppressing the data, misleading the data, rejecting the data, denying the data. But we have a moral obligation to stick to the truth. And I think the truth will win and we will progress through that. And with that, I thank you. I do apologize for the weird stuff at the beginning. And I would be happy to take any questions. Dr. Wolfgang Wodak is with us. Um, he's the one, you may know him, he's the one who kind of single-handedly stopped the swine flu in uh, 2009 and 10 uh, because he was then still in a position of power. He's, a, he's an experienced lung specialist, but he was also then a member of parliament and a member of the Council of Europe. Um, he, he's, he probably has some medical questions. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much for your for your slides and for your informations. It was a lot you told us. You told many aspects in many fields. You you mixed epidemiology, you mixed pharmacology with the and and uh, you the molecular biology. So many different perspectives you touched and you mixed them in your in your narrative. Yeah. So I, I did that on purpose because, you know, obviously if I were to give you the whole lecture it would be four or five hours. So I try to focus on the important issue. In, in order to in order to, fight, to, to to stick to the truth, I've seen so many truths. I have, for instance, the epidemiological studies. And I have a question, you know, the, the coronaviruses, they are well known for many years and they were never observed in the way we try to observe them now and they were just neglected. Everyone was just looking for influenza because there was nothing to be sold. And there was all this, all the science was done on, on, on uh, influenza. 
and all those other viruses we did not examine. We, the coronaviruses had spikes already for centuries, and uh, our body knows spikes. So there was something in the Wuhan lab, this is what people say. But how do you explain that the virus that is so dangerous can spread? And why only this virus from Wuhan? What is the advantage of this virus to, to, be, to get stronger than all the viruses from Rome, from London, from, they are, they are just multiplying all over the world at the same time. They are competing. And we know from evolution that those viruses are the most successful that don't kill their hosts. But what you say is just the opposite. I have no explanation for that. Yeah, so you ask a really good question, which I really don't have a good answer. All I can say to you is that this, this virus was manufactured in a laboratory, and I think they knew what they were doing. They, were, they had made a really horrendous, horrendous virus. And I think it goes back to the question that when you mess with nature, you can have serious consequences. So, you know, we should respect nature. We should respect our immune system. We should expect, respect the spread of infections. But th this is, you know, this is human beings messing with nature. They, they made this virus. Yeah. They manufactured this virus. Whether they... In many laboratories all over the world, they do such work. We heard about many in the last in the last month. We heard about several such such laboratories where they try, where they're dealing with with the pox pox virus, with where they're dealing with the coronavirus. They did such things with influenza virus. They did so many, and we know about the accidents, laboratory accidents, and this were only sm always small outbreaks, where the where the people who work with the virus got ill or died, and perhaps the relatives. But then it stopped. There was no big outbreak. I'm, I studied epidemiology, and I'm, I don't believe this narrative that a virus coming from a, such a laboratory just spreads all over the world and is so successful, more successful than all the other coronaviruses. This is not possible. This is against nature. And I, this is why I'm suspicious. We have the spread of the virus is the PCR test. Influenza disappeared. Everyone who had a cough and who had fever, he got positive PCR test. He was Corona. This was Corona, and there were and all this. What you what you told us is science. From it started from 2020. Nobody did it before. There was this was not done with MERS. This was not done with with. Although this was also such a PCR event, but we 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 had we have the we have the normal virus. We have the the, the, we meet the viruses and, and it's spreading or it's not spreading, we're getting ill. We have the epidemiological data. We have monitoring systems, very good monitoring systems in some countries where they regularly analyze the symbiosis of virus, the compet competition among viruses, where they see the, 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 the outcome uh, concerning the, the illnesses that happen and all these things. What you tell us does not fit to all whatever has happened before and does not fit to epi epidemiological and to, to, uh, uh, such, to, to the possibility of, of viruses 
to to replicate or to survive in nature. So this is one, yeah. This is one so, thing. I yeah, I mean, I understand I what you. Yeah, you have. You know, we, we stick to truth. This is what we agree. Yes. But I need I need many more details, and I you told so many things, and I I need now a very very big list of literature from from you. To, to find out why you told us what you said. And this so, is so, you know, I agree with you. There's so many things we don't know. We're learning all the time. You know, if you do a literature search on COVID, there are over 3 million publications. But what I can tell you is having actually seen this and worked in the ICU, we have a 16 bed ICU. For two years, our ICU was full of COVID patients. And COVID has a distinct signature on the CAT scan and the biochemistry. There's no other disease that actually mimics COVID. So, you know, we, the ICUs were full of these patients with COVID. Now, I agree with you, it's, it is mysterious why this virus has been so- why, it, why was it only in some states? Why not all over the world? It, it's not true because in Germany, it was not the case. It was but yes. So Germany observed very intensively in other in other European countries there was there were very very few cases that were called COVID, and it's very it depends on on the observer who observed and would watch me with with what means they observed it. This makes the picture, and I think it's there's a big big distortion in 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 observation. And just just think of this study about the about the uh, people who are who don't have symptoms and who could spread perhaps the virus. You know this big study in 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 Wuhan, where where there were millions of people. Uh, and they, they were they were examined, and they were tested. And those who were positive, they got all the contacts. Those are positive tests. They made all the contacts, and they didn't find any who spread the virus, who was also positive among the contacts. I think this is a very big study and it's very thoroughly done and with enormous numbers, which contradicts what you say. No, so, hold on, hold on one second, let me jump in. I think we all agree on the aspect of integrity, truth, credibility. That's the most important one. Um, maybe we're dealing with observation bias here because uh, the WHO and John Ioannidis, um, who is one of the most quoted scientists in the world, both agree, of course, everyone realizes there's a dangerous virus out there, but both agree that the infection fatality rate is between 0.14 and 0.15%, which is roughly the same as that of the common flu. Maybe the problem lies in observation bias, and maybe the problem lies in the fact that we listened too much to scientists who never treated any patients, one of them is Drosten, um, and not enough on those who are out there on the front lines. Because as Wolfgang just mentioned, we had numerous doctors who testified um, on our Corona investigative committee who used hidden cameras to show us that their hospitals were completely empty. We know that a few of the hospitals in, the, in, in New York, for example, were overwhelmed by patients, but many others were empty. We know that the hospital ship um, uh, uh, Comfort, uh, which could have um, which could have held a thousand patients, uh, was never used for any more than I don't know twenty or forty patients. 
So maybe it's because maybe it's because no differential diagnostics were performed, but rather, as Wolfgang said, everyone who came down with symptoms that might have been caused by the common flu, for example, or influenza, influenza A or B, maybe it's because no differential diagnostics were performed because the only thing that people were looking for is the coronavirus. And if that's the only thing you look for by testing for it, not even using multiple uh, 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 plex tests, and then, then and that's then, the only thing you find. Yeah. Could that be? Could that be an explanation for that, Paul? I can tell you. I can tell you in I in our ICU. So as I said, the CAT scan features. We do CAT scans on these people, and we've actually published a paper. There's influenza does not do this. Mycoplasma does not do this. Pneumonia does not do this. This is SARS-CoV-2. It is so specific. And what we would do is we would do a multiple respiratory pathogen profile. And maybe in two or 3%, there was co-infection with, with influenza. Many of these patients had COVID. So, I mean, I can only tell you what I saw and many of my colleagues saw. I mean, it's what we saw. I, I, and and I, I understand that the US was overwhelmed with COVID compared to any other country, which is really difficult to explain, but there was no question of doubt. I mean, I saw this with my own eyes, that these were, our ICU was full of patients with COVID. They had COVID. And there's no question about it. It wasn't another disease. And, you know, speaking to many of my colleagues across the country, they, they had a similar experience. And so I know that there's enormous geographic differences between different countries, which I mean, there are many things we just don't understand. It's, so it seems like in Northern Italy, they had a similar kind of problem with COVID. Uh, whether they did the same diagnostic tests, I don't know. Um, so, you know, the, the, the issues we don't understand. I mean, I understand what, what Wolfgang is saying. Why, why is this virus doing what it's doing? And I don't have a good answer. You know, I just don't have a good answer. We should uh, we should have in mind that there is a there was a big incentive in Germany, I know, and I know that in US too, the hospitals who just wrote down the coded the COVID-19 case, they got extra money. They got lots of extra money for each case. And this falsifies the results. We know that the hospital the hospitals, modern hospitals are 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 profit centers and so, uh, what you say is absolutely true so they make money for the diagnosis of of COVID. if you admit the patient to the icu you get more money if you intubate if you intubate the patient you get more money and if you give them remdesivir you get a 20 percent bonus so we know there's enormous financial incentives to manipulate the data now obviously that's done at a level which is beyond what most, you know, it's beyond, it's beyond what clinicians do. That's, you know, evil hospital administrators. You know, clinicians are just faced with treating the patient. And, you know, while they were, and we know this, patients who were admitted with trauma, who were inappropriately um, coded as having COVID just for the financial gain. But we saw, I mean, there's no question of doubt um, our ICUs were full for a long time with COVID. 
And the Delta variant was a vicious variant, which was very difficult to treat. And, you know, once you get to the pulmonary phase, it has such a characteristic CT finding, together with biomarker response of CRP and ferritin. There's no other disease which looks anywhere near it. Now, you're right, why this virus spread the way it did and was so effective, I don't know. I'm not sure if the people who made this virus knew what they were actually making. But, you know, from our end, treating these patients, it, it was a devastating disease. And I didn't put much credence in the, C, in the PCR because it's a clinical diagnosis. You know, once the patients come to the ICU and you get a chest X-ray and a CAT scan, you then get a ferritin, a CRP, a lymphocyte count. There's no other diagnosis. We would do screening for other respiratory viruses. Very few had them. Uh, obviously, one of the problems was superadded bacterial infections. You know, about 20% of patients would develop bacterial superadded infections. Did you, so, see, did you see more infections with, with, uh, with mushrooms because of the mask, wearing the mask? The masks were, were worn by many people. And this was, a, this was like a humid chamber for all bacteria growing. And did you see the effect of that? Did you make a differential diagnosis uh, concerning, uh, yes? So, I mean, that's a good question, you know. So we got patients once they were sick, whether they probably did wear a mask. So it's possible that, you know, obviously the masks don't work. You, you know, the mask may be a reservoir infection. So it's possible that the using the masks increase their risk of secondary infection. Yeah. Yes. So I, I don't know if, if such a study has been done, but it's possible. Yes. Um, know, here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing with Bergamo. We spoke to uh, we spoke with a, a number of Italian doctors uh, and scientists, and they explained what happened in Bergamo. Bergamo is a special area in Italy. Um, lots of industry there, uh, the air is not very good. And, and here's what happened. Um, ultimately, by the way, it turns out that 94% of the people who allegedly died of COVID died of completely other uh, causes. Same, by the way, in New York, 94% who allegedly died of COVID died of completely other causes. In Germany, before the uh, use of the so-called vaccines, there was this one particular pathologist who performed autopsies on people who allegedly died of or with COVID. Turns out that all of them had lived way beyond their average life expectancy and 84 or 85% had died again of completely other causes. So maybe what should have been done is the doctors, the real doctors, the frontline doctors, they should have been asked more. What is their experience? People like you and others, what have you really seen? It, it, I, I just cannot, I cannot make sense of the fact that both the WHO and Dr. John Ewan, uh, Professor John Ioannidis agree that yes, it spreads and yes, it's a little bit different from the common flu, but the mortality is no different. Infection fatality rate between 1.4 and 1.5%. Uh, um, what happened in Bergamo is um, they uh, transferred all of the patients who came to the hospitals because of uh, influenza A or B to the nursing homes to keep the hospital beds free for all those uh, COVID cases. 
which never arrived. At the uh, nursing homes, of course, they uh, infected people who, older people who had a compromised immune system. And on top of that, who had, had been given some kind of vaccine, I don't know which one it was, I keep forgetting, a couple of weeks before the onset of what they considered uh, uh, COVID. Another thing is the WHO, which as I only a couple of days ago realized is uh, the, the, I used to think that it's uh, Gates who, um, who donates the most money, but that's not true. It's Germany. Once again, it's Germany. So um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. On top of this, the WHO had infiltrated Italian health uh, politics by putting one of their own into the uh, Department of Health. And this guy then forged the numbers for the uh, uh, pandemic preparedness exercises. And it read as though the last exercise they had was in 2016, when in reality it was in 2006. So that's another good reason uh, why doctors in Italy were not really prepared for this. Um, so there, it's a number of facts that we have to take into consideration that we still have to make sense of. But I do agree um, that it's very strange how the regional impact seems to differ from country to country. I don't, I can't make any sense of this yet. Yeah, so I mean, I've got data looking at the mortality in the US versus Uganda or Ethiopia or the Sudan. And the mortality in the US is like a thousand fold higher. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know, maybe it do has any, to- Do any other infectious disease well, there's such a big difference in the in the effect on the population. I don't never not from tuberculosis. It's yes, we know if somebody is malnutrited when has not nothing to eat, is hungry, and so, or has other weaknesses, then all many different many uh, diseases. But this is not the case in U.S. They they are well fed. The people <laughs> in U.S. and you you don't have those problems. You have the obesity, yes, okay, but you have this in Greece too. You have this in other countries in in Europe too, and um, there should be the same effect, but there wasn't. Yeah, so I think you know obesity may be a factor because we know obesity is a major increases your risk of disease severity, and you know most Americans are obese. But still, I must say, I, I do agree with you. You know, there's so many things we don't understand. The, I mean, the, the, the mortality, the so-called mortality in the US is completely outrageous. But, you know, having been in the ICU and having been involved in hundreds of patients in ICUs who have died, you know, we've seen a lot of death. And, you know, it started off with, you know, elderly people with COPD and heart failure and liver disease who got COVID and died. But, you know, with time and with the change in the variants, it started affecting younger and younger people. And so, we, you know, we're aware of 40 year old people who are otherwise perfectly healthy, who got COVID and died. Yeah, um, but here's the thing, Paul, um, from all the figures that we've seen, um, it's it seems to be clear up until now, it seems to be absolutely clear to us that in no country, including the US, was there any excess mortality before they started with their so-called vaccination campaigns. Um, the vaccines seem to be the real problem here. And, and I, there's, I, another, there's another thing that they don't, they, if you have, if you got the jab, 
at the first two weeks, you're regarded as non-vaccinated. And those, those effects, those, those uh, toxic effects, most of them happen in the first two weeks. So there are many people that died from COVID. They died from spikes from the vax. And they were, and they were, they were regarded as COVID cases and unvaccinated. This is such a big betrayal. Do you know numbers, how to find out what is the truth in this scenario? I don't. Yeah, so that is a good question. So obviously, you know, if we could look at 220 data versus 221 data. And the insurance data tends to show that the excess deaths in people between ages of 20 and 60 went up in 21 with the vaccine. Yeah. So obviously, I think the big spike in non-COVID deaths was, was due to the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I think being vaccinated and getting COVID makes it doubly worse. But, you know, we could look at 220 because, you know, patients weren't vaccinated then. And still, you know, I'm not sure people have looked at excess mortality, but clearly there were a significant number of deaths. But you are right that the mortality in 221 was significantly higher than in 220. We, we analyzed the mortality in 2020, and it was, you, we, you said it were the, old, were the old people. You know, in that time when the mortality has risen, it was in, started in October in Germany. It was, it was the time when they went to the, the care houses of the old people, in all care houses, they tested all stuff and they put the stuff in quarantine. There, it was a horror for those people living in those institutions. There was no stuff anymore. They didn't get to drink. And the, the stuff who, who, was, who stayed there, they sent them to hospital, 90-year-old people and 88-year-old people sent them to hospital because they did not know what to do because they had no stuff in the hospital. They, they, did, they made a test. And there they made a test. And there were so many positive tests there. Although those people died when the, when the pathology was done, they died from their diseases. They died from getting no, nothing to drink. They died from all those people, old people die and those things. And I think there's a, we can have a very good analysis of this period of dying, old people dying, which has, there are so many reasons. And it was not all over the world that suddenly old people died. It was only in those countries where the where this those all those those lockdown messages those lockdown things were done. It was an effect of lockdown. Lockdown killed old people. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yes. You know, we had. No, like in your um, intensive care unit, I'm sure you, uh, or I was wondering, do you, uh, do you only treat like people with pneumonia or do you have all kinds of um, diseases there that need uh, extra care? So that's a good question. So basically our ICU became a COVID ICU. So that if you had COVID, if you had COVID, which really is COVID pneumonia, you came to our ICU. So our, our ICU became the designated ICU for COVID. So if you had other medical conditions, so we did look after patients who had sepsis or regular pneumonia or bowel issues, they went to a different ICU downstairs. So the ICU that became, it became the, the COVID ICU, it's 16 beds. 
and most of the time was full of COVID patients. Now, when patients came to the, who didn't need ICU, so the only reason you came to the ICU was really if you needed high level supplemental oxygen. If you needed you know, high flow nasal cannula, which they couldn't do on the floor, or you needed to be intubated, you came to the ICU. So there were many COVID patients on the general medical floor that were also you know, cohorted in specific ICUs. But when those patients deteriorated, i.e. went into respiratory failure, not being managed with nasal cannula, they would come to the ICU, which we, was, we were running, which was the medical ICU, and it was just a dedicated COVID ICU. Okay, I see. And is it, did you notice, like, when you compare the cases in 2020 and 2021 or 22 even, uh, would you um, be able to say if there was a different kind of, um, like, a more dramatic uh, or, yes. like, some, some sort of changes, like, maybe not yes. only related to the variants, but maybe to other things that they have co-problems maybe coming, stemming from... Yeah, so that's team. a good, yeah, that's a good question. There was a big change. So, you know, when it originally started, you know, in March or April of 220, it was mainly elderly people. So this was, you know, people over the age of 70 with comorbidities, mainly COPD and heart failure. And, you know, many of these people died. But with time, the age became younger. We were getting more and more younger patients. Some of them obese, but there was definitely a shift towards younger patients. And then, you know, when Delta came, Delta was much more resistant to treatment. So, you know, the alpha and beta responded really well to corticosteroids. And so, you know, we, we would closely follow their biomarkers, the CRP, their ferritin, their chest X-ray. Originally, these people responded quite well, but Delta uh, was really a vicious virus. And, you know, speaking to my colleagues, you know, across the country, they, they reflected the same thing. We didn't see so much of the sigma, which they got in South America, which I believe was also quite bad. Um, but th there's no question that there was a distinct clinical difference between the earlier infections and the more later infections. It was just, it was, it was clinically obvious. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was an observer because, you know, obviously we form a network of people and clinicians because, you know, we didn't know what to do. So we were communicating with each other. And this was, an, you know, an observation that we made. You know, I'm not sure if it's actually been published because people don't want to really publish this. Um, but, but this was a clinical observation. And, you know, I think, you know, clinical observations are really important. Of course. And uh, one uh, additional question I have um, on that topic is, did you, did you for your um, ICU, keep track of whether the people had received a vaccination? I mean, not if they were, like, deemed to be vaccinated, like, you know, with, like, two weeks after the second or third dose or something like that. But did you actually ask them or, like, uh, you know, like, kept track of that and yes. then therefore so have maybe... Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Obviously, 220, we didn't. Of course. So the problem in 221 is the major healthcare, the major information information system used in the US is called EPIC. Mm -hmm. And with EPIC, there are two options in terms of vaccination, vaccinated or unknown. Mm -hmm. So, and we're not sure how it gets into being vaccinated. So if, 
we think that if you were vaccinated within the healthcare system, it may come as vaccinated. But if you were vaccinated at a pharmacy or outside, it would not get into the medical record. So we don't we don't really think that the data, because they were, you know, saying that most of the people were unvaccinated. We don't think that's true. It's no. because the data was so poorly collected and the option was vaccinated or not vaccinated. And the other issue is the two-week period. So if you were yeah. recently vaccinated, you probably were. So it's not unvaccinated, it's unknown. Mm-hmm. So it's a really weird system that there's the healthcare, the medical record system is called EPIC. And mm-hmm. maybe they set that up on purpose to confound the issue. So, cause you know, there was this, you know, going around that the ICUs were full of unvaccinated people. Yeah. But we don't think that's true because mm-hmm. the data that they were using was just so inaccurate and misleading. Wow. All right. Um, there's so there's still many facts that we don't know. We, we there's confusing evidence, but what we do know is that the real problem started with the so-called vaccinations. Yes. So I think we can agree that the two major issues are one, the failure of early treatment and the misinformation propagated by the FDA, the NIH. Basically, they said there was no early treatment. So I think that the two biggest crimes are one, the failure of early treatment. And I think it was because their goal was to vaccinate everybody. That that was what the end point was. And then obviously these vaccines are completely ineffective and highly dangerous. So I think we would agree on those two points. I, I think they're not debatable. I have a question with, I have a mectin. Do you have experience with other viruses? Does ivermectin, ivermectin have an effect on other viruses too? So that, yes. So, you know, there haven't been good studies, but if you look at and wax stops, it seems to work on many RNA viruses, uh, Zika virus, chikungunya virus, dengue virus, influenza virus. So in vitro data, actually demonstrates that it may be effective against other RNA viruses. Hmm. Clearly, you know, it's in vitro data. We don't have clinical data. Yeah, because normally there's no diagnosis. The virus is not differentiated normally when there is something like that. Yes. Now they are sequenced. We have have the subtypes already. We have Omicron 1, 2, 3, and so it goes on. Yeah, will become very complicated. Yes, it's a very complicated disease. Yeah, but we'll find everything. The truth always comes out in the end. And I oh, think of we're course, oh, of course, <laughs> that you know, you can't hide the truth. You can disguise the truth and try and hide it, but the, tr- the, the true scientific facts will eventually come out. There's a lot of money on on this side where they, where they try to hide something. Absolutely. I think, you know, follow money and see where all the mistruths come from. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank you very much for your time and effort. Um, let's stay in touch because there are many more questions that need to, need to be answered. And I think we're getting the answers right now. We're coming to a kind of a tipping point. Um, 
But again, thank you very much and have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I think in terms of the vaccines, the dam wall is breaking. I think more and more people are are, are opening their eyes and seeing that these things aren't as safe as they've been portrayed. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, A. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Okay, um, we have another guest now from Israel. Um, can you please introduce yourself because I don't. I hate to read this. Uh, it's it makes much more sense if you do it because you know much better who you are and what you've been doing. I know you're famous because you used to work for the largest uh, newspaper, mainstream media newspaper, and for some reason, inexplicable reason, all of a sudden you don't work for them anymore. So what happened? inexplicable yes thank you first of all Rainer, for having me in your uh, amazing project um so uh, i am a health communication and risk communication researcher um, and also a health journalist and yes you're right i've been working for 20 years in which is actually the biggest newspaper in israel i have i'm a health journalist um, and yes, um, this corresponds uh, very well to your previous conversation uh, and what you previously said about uh, inflating the numbers because what happened <clears throat> was that in August 2020, uh, I knew almost nothing about what's happening, but I started to see already for a couple of months then that something is wrong with the way that the Ministry of Health and, the, and my colleagues in the media were uh, presenting the information and with the, many with the definitions. Um, I think the definitions are a very important part of how uh, or maybe the basis of uh, how they managed to inflate the numbers later on. So what I is I encountered in a, in a research done in the, in, the, in the UK by Professor Hanagan, and, and he found that the numbers of death cases were inflated by about I think ten percent or something like that, mainly through the definition because the definition of death there was that was such that uh, even if someone has died um, 10 months prior to the uh, after I'm sorry 10 months after being uh, diagnosed uh, in this PR test as, as a COVID uh, positive uh, he was considered to be uh, his, his death was considered as, as death from COVID so uh, what he said was that in, in the UK, no one with COVID is, is allowed to, to heal, to ever heal from his, his illness. So I decided to, um, to, to see what's happening in Israel. And when I analyzed the, the papers, the documents of the, our Ministry of Health, I realized that in Israel too, there is no, no one looks at the, at, the, at the gaps between when the PCR was done, uh, uh, when the positive PCR was, was done, and the death date. So anyone who was found positive 
for the virus and died whenever, even if that time uh, it was over 100 days after he was uh, diagnosed, he was considered as died from Corona, from COVID. Um, and even worse, uh, well, in the UK and US, the guidelines were, were transparent in Israel. The Ministry of Health did not uh, advertise the, the guidelines. And even when I asked them, they just ignored me. So um, I uh, asked permission to write about it. And of course, my uh, health edit editor uh, was very willing to publish it. Uh, but um, 20 minutes, I think, after my article was aired, uh, it was re removed suddenly, surprisingly removed. Um, and I must say that my uh, health editor was in shock, no less than me. Uh, but the editor of the, of the, of the website, of the Yodachronot website, just noted him that no article of Yafa Shiraz will air without his permission. Um, a few months later, I was fired, and then I think it was enough for the Minister of Health because, yeah, they didn't want to hear anymore. I just I, I managed to write another article on the source of the virus in Wuhan, and I think that was probably enough for them. After 20 years of work there, and I was very much appreciated. They just claimed they wanted to lighten up the contents and that my uh, writing was uh, too in-depth or something like that. Yes. What I, I forgot, by the way, to uh, mention your name, but that's only because I didn't know how to pronounce it. Dr. Yafa Shiraz, is that correct? Precisely, oh. yes. What, and now, you're, are you a medical doctor? No, no, no. I'm a health communication. Uh, okay. Researcher, mm -hmm. and, and I focus on, and I also forgot to say that I'm a member of the Professional Ethics Front in, in Israel, mm -hmm. uh, which is an independent Israeli group of uh, physicians, lawyers, scientists, and researchers um, who've come together to address uh, the many ethical issues that have uh, surfaced as a result of the COVID crisis uh, mm -hmm. in Israel. Um, I'm a health communication researcher, and um, I uh, focused in the past already on the influences of the pharmaceutical companies on journalists and doctors and, and policymakers. And um, surprisingly enough, I did my uh, postdoctoral uh, work um, as part of the UN-funded, uh, uh, EU, sorry, funded the international project on the risk communication uh, in, in the infectious disease uh, in the age of uh, digital media. I would never have thought that my postdoctoral dissertation would be so relevant, unfortunately. I have, we have, uh, I would like to ask you some questions about not just the general situation in Israel, but also about the side effects and how are they are they actually being reported? And um, you know, there's a VAR system in the United States, which everyone knows is heavily underreported. Um, there are credible, credible, uh, and some even say conservative figures that estimate the actual damage 
uh, here in the United States to have after the start of the vaccinations um, of 500,000 people um, between December of 2020 and July of 2021 seem to have died. Now, there's only correlation uh, in, in most of these cases, no causation has been proved, but this is still a very, very, very high number. And as Paul Merrick just pointed out, uh, this is something that needs to be investigated. Um, I have two short clips which I want to show our viewers. Uh, one is by Dr. Ryan Cole. Um, he's a pathologist from Idaho in the United States. And the other one is by Dr. Uh, Russell Blaylock explaining about the side effects as they are seeing them here in the United States. And I, was, I will then ask you, what is the situation as far as the side effects are concerned in Israel? So let's first take a look at these two short clips these sudden deaths i mean what what a joke there was a paper that came out the other day new syndrome sudden adult death syndrome I'm like sudden adult death syndrome is because people are getting a toxin in their body that's inflaming their heart and to that point in terms of like the drummer from the foo fighters and other individuals there was an early study with these mrna shots that shows that over time and this was a mouse study but it, it balloons the heart and as the heart balloons, you lose pumping volume. And once you can't pump enough blood, then you can't get enough oxygen. And eventually you're in heart failure and you die. I've seen autopsy tissues from triathletes who drop dead on the swim. And these are people that are at the peak of physical performance. And, you know, do athletes die every year occasionally in an event? You bet. But if you look around the world, a couple of athletes per month used to die on on the you know football field or on the soccer pitch or whatever. Now we're getting hundreds each month dying. Why? Is there something new in humanity? You bet there is. A toxic lipid nanoparticle and a toxic modified RNA that doesn't shut off. You bet we have causes, and 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 they say, well, gosh, you know, vaccines. You you really only have these adverse reactions in the first couple of days to most vaccines. Well, that this is a gene product, and this spike persists. This modified mRNA persists. The Stanford study in, in the journal Cell showed that this sequence persists in the lymph nodes for up to 60 days. At which point they published their paper, but. It probably persists much longer than that. Autopsy studies out of my colleague, Dr. Arndt Burkhardt in Germany shows spike depositing in vessel walls 128 days after the last shot. So we're, we're putting something in the body that number one, doesn't break down. Number two, it's making a toxic spike protein. And number three, it's persisting. Uh, Dr. Bruce Patterson, pathologist uh, colleague, showed that the spike was persisting in our circulating CD16 monocytes for up to 15 months. So. Uh, it, it's insanity to keep pushing the most deadly, dangerous medical product ever allowed to persist in humanity. What's going to happen in terms of cancer? Are we going to, when they uh, start injecting these little five-year-old and 10-year-old, how many are developed leukemia? How many young adults are going to develop lymphoma? We're going to, we're going to find out high probability. We're going to see a real spike in childhood cancers because of this. And they're ignoring that. One of the, the, the really frightening studies was it uh, impairs DNA repair. And these DNA repair enzymes are very efficient at fixing that damage. Well, they found that after the vaccination, the vaccine actually impaired two of the most critical of these uh, DNA repair enzymes. One of them is called BRCA1. Well, 
some people may remember BRCA1 defect, which this vaccine produces, is the same thing that makes women have very high incidence of breast cancer, a very aggressive breast cancer. It also increases prostate cancer, a very aggressive prostate cancer. Uh, and it uh, interferes with another DNA repair enzyme. So you have a situation in which you're impairing your immunity and you're impairing your ability to repair DNA. What's going to happen over the next several years, uh, we're only going to have to wait and see. But I predict you're going to see a tremendous increase in cancers. And you may see new types of cancers. Now, it goes beyond that. It's also uh, the neurodegenerative diseases because it enters the brain. And the brain starts uh, having reactions to this spike protein. And so your brain cells are being damaged by it. Your immune cells in your brain become chronically activated. And that's the basis of all neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, uh, and multiple sclerosis. We've already seen some cases of multiple sclerosis after vaccination. We've seen transverse myelitis, which causes paralysis uh, and blindness, loss of hearing, facial paralysis. We're already starting to see these neurological effects. And it's just being totally ignored by the media because the media is under the control of the pharmaceutical companies. That's where they get their funding for their, their programs. Uh, so uh, people need to be aware. These are very, very dangerous vaccines. So, Yafa, what's going on in Israel? Are people aware of this? Are they... Are they making the connection between the health damage that they suffer after getting the shots and the shots? Or is it so that the mainstream media have everything so badly under control that no one understands what's going on? Well, that's a great question. I think, um, I think people are starting to realize right now that what's happening because there is too much information right now going out. Um, but there is a huge problem in Israel. You said rightfully that uh, the verse system is, is very problematic and there is a huge underreport to the verse system. But in Israel, there is completely no verse system at all. What we have instead and this is despite the fact that uh, we have, we do have advanced technological systems available in the Israeli HMOs. So, in fact, if the Ministry of Health would have wanted to, they wouldn't have needed even a, a VERS system. They could just, with pushing a button, know everything they want to know. But it seems like they do not want to know because there is no transparent verse system in Israel. Instead, what there is is, is, a, is an online uh, reporting form that is uh, available on the MOH's uh, website. Um, but uh, this form was, uh, was created only a month after uh, the a vaccine vaccination uh, was started was initiated in Israel, um, and because it, it did not allow the inclusion, if it, it was on the website, but it did not allow for many months uh, the inclusion of personal contract contact information. So uh, no one would come back to you. You could just as well send it with the with with the 
with a bird or something, with a crow, I don't know. Uh, so there was actually for many months no system at all, no transparent system. So the fact that the FDA is relying on the, on the Israeli MOH is, is a sad joke, really. That's it. Uh, we had a guest. We had a guest a couple of weeks ago. Um, I forget what position he held, but he's also someone who understands uh, from Israel. He understands about the Israeli uh, healthcare system, and he told us the very same because. And he he was born and raised in the United States. That much I remember. And he did. Josh, he could, Josh. Pardon me. Josh Gesko, Doctor Josh Gesko. Yeah. Yeah, that was him. That was him. Yeah. And he he was just as dumbfounded as we are that the FDA, that the United States, the American FDA relied on the data from Israel, which don't even exist. This is don't even exist. That's yeah, inconceivable. Sanity. It is complete yeah, insanity. I think, I think in my, my as I feel they just it's it's purposefully. I, I think yeah. they just Built it in, in a way it, it's it's a plan that they built that yeah. they would rely it, it's like a domino they would rely on the Israel on Israel but, but there is a hole here in Israel there is nothing. But who is going to protect the Israeli people if they don't get to know if they do not get to know the real facts. Um, we've spoken to many people from Israel. Um, Ilana yeah. Rachel Daniel is one of the most well-known activists in that country. Adi Itak, many others. And they're all saying they're they're all saying basically the same as you are. Uh, there is no real there. There's nothing that's even comparable to the uh, VAR system, even though VARES, of course, as we know, uh, doesn't really function as well as it should. But at least it's there. Um, and the power or the the fact that the that the mainstream media are completely under control of those who are pushing the narrative, uh, just like the politicians. So in Israel, the situation seems to e seems to be even worse than, than in most other countries because how do people get to the actual information? Is it correct that most Israelis still believe the mainstream media? still believe their politicians and don't try to find out from other sources what's really going on? Well, I'm not sure it's completely true. I think mm -hmm. I think they are starting to, to understand, but I think they are silent because the, the signs, the good signs that I see is first of all that a very a, a very small percentage of the parents um, injected their, uh, agreed to inject their, their uh, five to 11 year old children, only I think about 20%. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think anyone, would, I, I don't think many, okay, will, will vaccinate, will give them the, the third dose. We just, they just, I, I, unbelievable. They just um, authorized the, the third dose, the booster in Israel for, for five to 11 year old children. Um, even though they, um, they, do, they do know, they do know, I, I'm sure they do know the, 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 the details, the, the reports that are 
uh, surfacing, even though they do not want to know. Um, I'm sure they do know because I know they have commissioned um, a, a, a report or a, a, a study that would analyze the uh, side effects in, in children. Um, they only commissioned it in December, last recent December, um, but uh, I know they have the details. I do know they have the details. They, they already have the results, but they are not publishing them. And I, um, I know from inside sources that the, that the results are not good. And still, they authorized they, they um, authorized yesterday yesterday or the day before yesterday they authorized um, a third dose to go to this youngest uh, age group. Um, so they're just going ahead like nothing happens. And is there more spreading in like mainstream media now? We see that, that we have a few, um, you know, reports about like vaccine injuries uh, also in mainstream. I mean, they're kind of try to frame it as like sort of a, um, a very rare or like, um, you yeah, know, kind of exactly. unexpected um, immune, immunological uh, reaction or something. And you're the one unexpected, who was not... You were just mm -hmm. had just bad luck or something like that, but bad at least luck. a little bit uh, reporting. And do you see anything of that kind in Israel? Yeah, exactly. Uh, very rare, very very rare. And even if it gets out, still they are trying to kill it. For example, a few days ago, there was not in the mainstream media, but there was a. Um, um, one of the celebrities in Israel, um, she got some very bad neurological um, reaction, like uh, like Tourette's or something very similar. It seems um, a young a young woman, very young, um, and she said in in a very heart-tearing video that she's suffering and. And you can see that she doesn't control her face at all and that she's suffering. And she said uh, that the doctors told her everything, every idea, only not COVID, only not COVID vaccine. They just threw any guess um, out of their head, but just eliminated the possibility that it could be uh, from the COVID vaccine. Um, but she said, be careful, be careful. So I think these type of things do influence people. And I think there is a, a growing um, alternative media in Israel that is uh, really um, starting to influence. Um, but we do need to see how to um, get to people who are not with us yet, who are still, yeah, still believing the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, um, it's probably worse in Israel than in most other countries. Uh, but that may, I mean, this is, this is probably at this point speculation, but it is, uh, it does have a, um, a rational basis. If it is true that the United States is pointing to Israel with respect to how safe and effective these vaccines are, 
and how Israeli numbers add up to what they're doing here in the United States, then they, of course, need to keep Israel under control. And that's why they need to keep Israelis from understanding what's really going on. Uh, it's just like exactly. Paul Merrick says, it's the vaccines that are doing the real damage, the so-called vaccines. We know they're not vaccines. We know, there's, we know there's no necessity for them. And we know they're neither effective nor are they safe. Um, but it seems as though in Israel, they're taking particular pains to not let the population understand what is really going on. That's true. Um, and they are doing it also by, by really suppressing and censoring everyone who is just even asking questions, not just say, you know, criticizing the policy or, or, or anything like that. Even asking questions is not allowed. If you are asking questions, you immediately smeared and they initiate a smear campaign against you. Um, just today, uh, one of the journalists, one of the known journalists in the, in the mainstream media um, started a, a, a really what seems like a, like a smear campaign again against another journalist who, uh, who is one of the really only ones who, who do speak up in the mainstream mm -hmm. media. So he just started a, a smear campaign against him. So, and, and regarding doctors and, and scientists and researchers, they are just silencing them and, and calling them fake news and advertising in their website, in their Facebook page, just smearing and blackening their names it's unbelievable what they are doing. And those are leading uh, scientists and, and, uh, and doctors. Um, Do you have any contacts or like anyone from the resistance has contacts into like, say, military, police, uh, you know, so, sort of like administration um, and, and gets like a little bit of an idea if there are people inside the system that have doubts? Um, I think there are people who have that. The, actually, some of some of the doctors and members in in a, that that are uh, raising concerns that are from the system, are from the inside of the system, and still they are raising doubts. But they too are not heard. That's the problem. Once you start raising doubts, once you start raising concerns, you are immediately deleted or, or worse, smeared, and, 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 the, and they are starting to send the letters uh, that uh, um, are um, questioning your um, ability, questioning your professionality. Um, just Yeah, but this is, it, it seems to be particularly bad, both in Israel and in Germany, but for separate, for different reasons. Um, in, in Israel, it makes sense to keep the population sort of silenced up, because Israel seems to be a, 
a special reference point for the United States, for the FDA. Uh, so if, if the truth came out, I don't know how it came out that I think 92% of the people who are hospitalized with COVID symptoms in Israel have been twice vaccinated, uh, vaccinated and even gotten the booster shot. But if this becomes common knowledge in the United States, then their narrative, which is based on the numbers from Israel to a large degree, I guess, uh, will come apart as well. In Germany, the situation is different in so far as Germany, if you look at the bigger picture, which is the Great Reset and the goals that it is pursuing, the Great Reset wants complete world control um, through a one world government and a one world digital currency issued by a one world bank, both of which, both the uh, one world government and the one world bank and its digital currency being controlled by them through the WEF. If you look at the bigger picture, then um, Europe seems to be the first in line to uh, get this one world government on the basis of the EU. But in order to achieve that, you have to destroy uh, the European, uh, Europe's biggest economy, and that's Germany. That's why there's so much pressure on the Germans very much like uh, what's happening in Israel. Maybe not quite as bad, but pretty bad. Um, but so that's why I'm saying you always have to see the bigger picture, which is no conspiracy theory, but it's all out there in the open. You can read it on the in that book, The Great Reset or The Fourth Industrial Industrial Revolution. Both of um, both of these books have been written by um, by Klaus Schwab. And this guy founded the World Economic Forum in 1971 as a result of his education in the United States at Harvard in, a, in his participation in a CIA-funded program. So that's the bigger picture, which we have to take a look at in order to understand what's happening both in Israel and in Germany. But I really, I don't know what to say about Israel uh, because this is a very special and a very difficult relationship between Germany and Israel. We just realized, this is only a couple of days ago, that the WHO, which is the major driver of all of this, of the vaccines, of the pandemic, that the WHO's most important um, uh, donor is not Bill Gates, it's Germany. It's Germany. And it's Germany that invented, at the behest of the WHO, with the help of this uh, dubious professor, Dr. Drusten, invest, invented the PCR test, which was um, designed to create cases that didn't exist. And it's Germany that first came up with BioNTech, BioNTech, whatever, um, uh, that was the first one to invent the so-called mRNA vaccines. And all of this, all of this started in Germany and it's happening or the results of which can be seen in Israel. It's very, very, very bizarre, very bizarre. It's, a, it's like a replay of what we experienced 80 years ago. In, in, a, in the strangest way. Yes, in the strangest way. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, and mm -hmm. I must say, I wouldn't in a million years have thought that this would happen in my country. Never. 
would I have thought that this would happen in my country? They are just selling us like, yeah. And you are not allowed if you if you are trying to say that you are immediately attacked because you are not allowed to compare. You are not allowed to compare. I'm not yeah. allowed to compare. I'm I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and, and I'm not allowed to compare. Well, I'm comparing. Well, I just spoke a couple of days ago. I spoke again with Vera Sharaf. Um, who is also a Holocaust survivor, and she explicitly pointed out that we must see the parallels between what happened then and what's happening now. In, in the interview that we did with her, she explicitly said, I cannot believe I'm fighting the same people or their uh, successors or the institutions uh, which I fought 80 years ago. And that is so important to see, so important yeah. to see. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was wondering, is there, you mentioned the smear campaigns and the, uh, you know, the efforts to silence you and other people. And um, has there been like more intense things, uh, have there been uh, more intense things going on, like uh, trying to um, sue you or like trying to arrest people or any of that kind? Well, not in Israel. Actually, um, we've just finished, um, I have, um, uh, four uh, colleagues of me and four colleagues of mine uh, were conducting a, we conducted a, a study um, that looked into just this issue of uh, censorship and suppression of uh, scientists and uh, and doctors, but not just in Israel, but actually all over the world. And we interviewed uh, some of the leading um, uh, doctors and, and scientists, and we chose on purpose, people who never thought they would find themselves in this side of the of the map or, uh, uh, named such uh, smeared and, and named as COVID deniers or, you know, um, they never thought they, they were popular prior to the COVID crisis. They were mainstream um, and community uh, um, and even some of them were really price um, winners and editors in, in um, important journals and wrote many articles, many, many books. Never in the eighth dream would they thought that they would find themselves in such a situation. And we started this study as, as a study on censorship. But as we delved um, into into the into, into those interviews with them, we found that actually it's not just censorship; it, it's really um, um, becoming suppression. And the were cases not not prisoning, but police search, uh, firing people, um, trying every move to ruin their careers and this this we found also in israel a very intensive and aggressive attack or attack on on people's careers um, but um, in other countries yes we did find cases in which people were sued even and people were um, um had this, a, a poli the police searching their homes um, it's really a vicious attack 
on scientists and doctors all over the world, not just in Israel, of course, but, but yes, also in Israel. In Israel, there was an attempt uh, to create a situation in which on to, there was an attack launched on, on two doctors, uh, blaming them that they gave an advice to someone who died in the, in the hospital from COVID, blaming them that they were responsible, trying to create the impression that they were the ones who were responsible for his death, even though he died in the hospital, because uh, they tried to, to say that their advice was what, what caused his death. So uh, this is, I think, the most far they went, they went, but they did launch very, very vicious attacks on, on doctors and scientists. Yafa, we have, uh, Corvin just reminded me that you have a short clip uh, that yeah. shows what's going on in Israel in the, uh, either in the mainstream or in the alternative media, or the social media, or rather, uh, how they're social being bashed, media. I suppose. Uh, let's just hear it. Let's just play it quickly, okay? Okay. Okay. Also, bitte das Yes, those are young influencers that were paid to just read like parrots the text that was written very carefully in the in the PR agency of the Ministry of Health, and they are reading this the very same text that our Prime Minister Bennett uh, said in front of the whole nation, in which he just tried to tempt children to get vaccinated and threaten them that they will not have a vacation in the summer if they will not, uh, vaccine, if they will not vaccinate. So just one, one of those influencers are asking the viewers, the, the, those children in this paid campaign to get vaccinated so that they could just go and get around in the malls in, in, the, in the vacation. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely horrific. They are just trying to, you know, over, go over the heads of their parents. And I think this is the, one of the lowest points of the Minister of Health in the, in the last two years. Um, and part of this uh, really, Incredible brainwashing, just massive well, brainwashing. Are, those people that they're well-known influencers in Israel. Is that it? They they have their own yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, social media channels, and the government is using them to drive the so-called vaccination campaign. Yeah, exactly. So my colleague Asaf uh, Azari, he just found all of those pieces, all of those influencers, and just combine them together to, to show how the brainwashing machine works. Because it, this is what it is, a brainwashing machine. Obviously, yeah. 
And then maybe they, I, I'm sure they, they also receive money, these influences. Yeah, yeah, of course. My, one of my friends uh, said, uh, to, told me months ago that her uh, boy um, got a, an invitation from the Ministry of Health. I think it's, I think something like a thousand dollars or something like that that they offer them. But, you know, those are young people. Um, something like that he was offered and it in order to say just this text. And um, Rainer, I don't know if you remember, we had like a similar case in um, yeah. in Holland, in the Netherlands, where uh, I think Jeroen Pols told us about this, where like some very um, influential um, person from yeah. from uh, from Holland, she she got she blew open it blew open that she had received a lot of money for doing this influencing campaign toward vaccination or like some other thing uh, with regards to Corona. And um, then she was for a short time she claimed that she was on the side of the resistance. But then I think they offered her more money from the government, and then she was back on track. So I mean, it this wow. seems to be happening all around the world. I'm sure also yeah. here in Germany. Yeah, of course, of course. What's yeah, happening in Israel is happening everywhere. Yeah, of course. But it's in a, in a nutshell in your country. You can really see exactly. it very, very closely what's going on. It seems exactly. to be a matter of price. Yeah. It's Everyone. all about money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So many people sell their souls to the devil. And transparency corruption yeah. does not recognize. Yeah. Transparency International is not, uh, is blind suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they are walking through the same... Right. But why? The same guidelines, <laughs> the same book. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what is uh, the next step, the next step in Israel that the government or those who were who are acting uh, as the government, uh, what are, what's the next step that they're planning? Is this is there going to be an introduction? Because it looks as though this is the you really are the guinea pigs of the world. Um, is the next step that they're going to be uh, vaccinations every six months or so? Well, it definitely seems like they are preparing, you know, the field for that. Mm -hmm. um, right now, I think uh, they are going on the, on the children. In my opinion, I think they are going on the children all over the world uh, for a reason. Uh, maybe for more than one reason. Uh, correct me if I'm, wrong, if I'm wrong, but I think they are going on the children because, first of all, um, and, and I said it actually from the beginning of this crisis because older people will stop eventually to vaccinate. And I think, I think we've come to this point in Israel or are very near to this point. And this is, I think, uh, the encouraging thing. I think most of the people by now at least understand that this vaccine is not effective. Mm -hmm. And they are saying, okay, um, they are not willing to listen. They are, they are still listening to the, to the television, to the mainstream media. They are still not willing to admit that they made a mistake. But, and I'm speaking to many people, uh, I'm, I'm very curious to understand why they got vaccinated and what will they do mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in, in the future. 
So what they're saying is that they will not take another one. Whether it's the third or the fourth vaccine, most of the people here got at least three doses, including, I'm sorry to say, my mother who got four doses, which I only found out in the ambulance uh, on, on our way to the hospital because she got a second heart attack after being vaccinated. But uh, I think most of the people are saying they will not get vaccinated anymore and they definitely will not vaccinate their children. So I think the challenge will, will be to see what will happen now, because on one hand, we have the authorities trying, pushing to put this vaccine, pushing to go on the, on the babies. We just saw this week the FDA authorizing the vaccine for babies, um, even though they are hiding so much information that shows that many babies were, were harmed. Um, and we looked into the first system and we analyzed the, the first uh, reports and saw at least 58 babies who were harmed, uh, who were severely harmed. Um, I don't know how they were vaccinated, but they were harmed, suffered multi-system uh, adverse events. Um, but they ignored it and they say it's safe and effective. And now uh, they authorize this vaccine. But on the other hand, I do think that the, the public is not with them anymore. At least the vast majority of the public is not with them. They are not admitting they will no, not go to the street and demonstrate. They will not speak up, right. but they will not get vaccinated. At least in Israel, that's the situation, I think. I think uh, we have to be aware that they are just those greedy investors on in the vaccine in the so-called vaccines. They are just planning to use the mRNA, the RNA technology also for other vaccinations. They are yeah. just planning to, to do it yeah, with the children. Right. You know, we are we are used to trust most of the people, not all, are used to trust the industry and, and get the children vaccinated. In 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 US it's extreme. And in Germany, there is a certain opposition against this, but it is very weak compared with the majority and compared with the official saying. But uh, I think now those, the people, the parents may, be, may, may start thinking. And um, because when they, when they know, and it's very important to tell it, that they, they will have the same risks, whether they do this um, RNA uh, jab against measles, whether they do it against influenza, it's it's oh. it's just gene therapy. It's it stays gene therapy, and it's an experimental thing. And there are so many risks, and we are just aware now of which risk can can happen. And uh, this will be the same with all the other RNA uh, jabs. They want they are planning to do because they do it because the production of this of the stuff is much, much cheaper, it's much, much quicker. And now there is no, all the administration which was protecting us against such experiments, they are all bought, they are all, they're all gone. They are all in the, in this big mainstream. They exactly. don't protect us anymore. You, we, we were speaking about the, the Paul Ehrlich Institute, which is the German administration protecting us against bad vaccines normally. Um, they said, 
that the RNA, mRNA is staying only in the muscle for a very short time. They have written it. They have written it. And this was a basic of their decision why they said, yes, do it. Now they have to, they have to just to admit that it stays 60 days and much, much longer because it's no normal mRNA. It's an artificial gene therapy, which was planned and constructed to stay longer. And they, they know it and they don't stop it. They are criminal doing this. They are killing people. They are hurting our children. They will kill our children. It's incredible what they do. We have to speak about it openly. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And this puzzles me because I don't understand how at the same time that the information is accumulating and, and exploding actually, they are just reach, they're just continuing and reaching the point in which they're starting to inject babies. And like nothing happens, even though all those FOIAs and all those informations are just exploding right now. Well, Everything I mean, the, the thing is that there's no way back for them. You know, if they really yeah. um, let loose and yeah. um, and uh, give us a little, <laughs> a little, a uh, little bit of air, you know, they are they're they're, they're lost. They're going to be lynched. Yes, there will be many many parents going and and assembling in front of the Paul Ehrlich Institute and trying to get them responsible. I think there will be many many parents when this happens to the children. But about the pediatricians, we have to say the pediatricians, when it started with, with, the, with the COVID problem, they said, oh, there are no children, almost none in Germany was dying from, from corona infections. And this didn't change. Yeah. And, now, and now we have worldwide, we have many children dying from this jabs, from this from this gene therapy. And uh, though they, they see it, it's in the numbers, it's in the official reports of various of other, of, of the British, of the British uh, Health Service, they all publish it and it's official data. And they know that only some of the, uh, some of those uh, adverse effects are reported. Not all, very often uh, children or people die and, and it's just hidden because the doctors have bad conscience because they did, they were in favor of the jabs and they don't want to stand for it. They just let it go on. Please, doctors, please, colleagues, stop this. We, nobody can forgive you. If you, you know, you may make big mistakes. You may even kill your patients with the wrong treatment. This happened very often in the past. But now it's time to stop it. If you continue it, you're lost. Mm -hmm. I have a, 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 well, for my side, a final question. Does the, um, the agenda of the monkeypox, does that play any role in Israel? Well, it started to. We also had a very short episode of polio in Israel, um, but it looked like, um, I don't know, trying to dig into filthy water or something. Yeah, we did have a sh very short episode of, of, of scare campaign regarding the monkeypox, but uh, 
right now they are concentrating again on COVID. They stopped yeah. talking about it. They have so many things where they, 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 they just want to make, have an advantage from all the side effects. They declare this, 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 uh, this so the herpes soster, the shingle, yeah. they declare it as, as monkeypox and they have a positive test and they have shingles and then it's monkeypox. So you, yeah. you, may have, you may have the chickenpox uh, and even if, you, if you're grown up when you, get this, when you get this jab, maybe it comes again a little bit or maybe it comes as shingles. And, and then they say, oh, this is, there's, a pox, there's a virus which is very similar to the monkeypox virus. And it is very similar. And the test for sure is positive. And then they start making panic again because they will, they will just try to find all the, the environment of those people having such, such uh, soster um, efflorescence or such soster on their skin. It's, it's so, or herpes even, and they will, they will just make a big fuss about it and they will sell us new drugs, they will sell us new vaccines against the side effects and it's just greedy people taking the chance and looking at the stock exchange, they have a new idea and how does it work on the stock exchange, do we get money from it? It's just a short time interest which are, which are driving this whole machine. It's horrible. It has nothing to do with health. Exactly. Actually, what they did talk about in Israel um, for what was highlighted this week in Israel was the issue of hepatitis, this mysterious hepatitis. They mm -hmm. had a, a study, a so-called study, um, declaring that uh, what they found was that uh, this uh, mysterious hepatitis was due to long COVID. Yeah, yes. You know, this <laughs> It, they didn't even find out whether the parents of those babies who got the hepatitis, which vaccination they got. Exactly. And they, but they found adenoviruses in most in most of those children, which is very unusual because the hepatitis doesn't doesn't happen with adenoviruses. But they found adenoviruses as the the major uh, the major symptom there or the major finding. And they said, oh, we don't know how this comes. But they could just ask the parents whether they got Johnson & Johnson or whether they got, they got uh, AstraZeneca because they use adenoviruses. No, but for... not in Israel. In Israel, we only got Pfizer. Oh, yeah. Okay. We are the Pfizer country. So maybe uh -huh. this is just an autoimmune disease, which is, happens because there is some... I don't, is even some know if, I don't even know if it's that. I think... I have a source in one of the major hospitals in which uh, some of the, mo most of those uh, <coughs> are hospitalized, and those are not many children, very mm. few children, I think 10 or even less, nine I think or There are almost 500 children now worldwide, which are, which are known. But, but what this source told me was <coughs> no sense of urgent, urgency in the hospital no one talks no one even speaks about it because it's it's a it's a common situation that there there are some children who suffer from liver problems and with no connection it's not mysterious it's not mysterious those are um babies who were born with problems or maybe i don't know maybe some of them are we, we just um, um we, we just um uh, issued the um, FOIA 
uh, trying to understand what, yes. what those what they, babies what, what, what they found was an, was an autoimmune disease. Atypical. I guess so. I guess so. And no, no viruses, no hepatitis viruses, nothing. Only mm -hmm. adenoviruses, and um, and an autoimmune reaction. And yeah. um, this you may have. You may have this when you have uh, your immune system, or the immune system is disturbed by something unusual. And if the if there is a you know there is very close contact with the, with the breast milk and and all this. When the, when the mother has very close contact so that to the small children just exactly maybe, it's very it's very very uh, uh, possible that uh, there is just a shedding between those persons and we they, there has to be research done on this exactly shed, shedding or or those are some of them at least are breastfeeding babies whose mothers were vaccinated um we are just now analyzing um data uh, reports from the verse on, on the nurse feeding babies we found 637 reports on a uh, nurse feeding babies um who were harmed and um, some of them died at least two of them died um so yeah if you yeah. If there's breastfeeding they take they take those spikes through the uh, intestine. So it goes in a different way than if you don't inhale it, you don't inject it in the muscle, but it comes into the intestine. And there is the liver. Yeah. This very, which is, which it may be such a way, such a place where, where the, those uh, toxic effects then happen, but it's just the theory. It has to be, there has to be research, but it's not mentioned. They don't mention even the risk of parents yeah, that that are shedding perhaps no but you know in pfizer's uh, protocol the the study protocol they are mentioning the fact that yes. uh, there could be a yes. um babies could, babies could be in um, could have a reaction to mm -hmm. to the spike protein through the through breastfeeding or yes. even through Right. Even for exposure to the to shedding from their dead, this is mentioned in Pfizer's documents. And I think there are animal studies who prove it. And but in the, the British uh, Health uh, Administration is having a, a working group on the problem of hepatitis with small children, and they have a plan, a working plan. And I, I had a look on. Perhaps they have changed it, changed it in the meantime. But when they started. They didn't think of this shedding problem. They did not have it in, in mind. And so they did not plan to do research on it. And this is, I think it's very important to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. As we discussed with, no I think it was with Noemi uh, Wolf, you know, with this breastfeeding thing that that can also yeah. be another money-making scheme uh, with the, you know, artificial uh, breast milk that they produce yeah. and then uh, there's going to be so much need and people are going to be willing to pay everything to uh, anything yeah. to pay uh, to you know to feed their children I, I think it's so intricate and mean Bill Gates breast milk is safer than that of your mother well I mean if she's <laughs> spiked then it's for sure safer the baby formula yeah that's the next big thing here it's happening already Okay. Well, thank you very much, Yafa. Thank you very, thank you. very much. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, 
And uh, despite all this, I hope the weather is nice in Israel, and I hope you're still going to be enjoy your weekend. Thank you. You too. Okay. Take good care. We'll be in touch. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Vivian. Yeah, we have now a guest in the studio. In the studio. I'm very happy as Professor Dr. Paul Cullen. And he's an extraordinary professor and um, head of laboratory uh, of the um, MVZ in Munich. Um, a physician. And maybe you can um, say something about yourself. Yes, I am. I a uh, physician. I come from Dublin, studied medicine there, and I came to Hanover in London, to London, and then I went to Münster. And by now I am a doctor for uh, internal medicine. I have a research background. Before I worked in the clinics, I was at the university, and I have a background in molecular biology and epidemiology because we have a university where we looked at cardiovascular sclerosis in the work on the university, the epidemiologics and the pathophysiology of that. and. I have also <clears throat> got a degree in biochemistry um, uh, focusing on molecular biology from the King's College in London. I could do that uh, accompanying my research work. Uh, that's the background. And that means I have gone through a number of areas. I've done uh, worked in clinical wards um, in a practice and in research and for a couple of Yes, I am managing a big laboratory where we work with many hospitals, many practices with uh, laboratory services. All right, we are going to speak a different uh, topic today about transhumanism. But I would like to know um, uh, from the laboratory medical side, can you see uh, strange blood uh, samples? We don't, because we don't look into that. All these changes in the blood counts that are described, that is not what uh, we look at. Uh, this is uh, not done in our laboratory, but that's done completely um, done, uh, especially with that question, vaccinated, unvaccinated. That's very, very rarely done. It's not a routine. Uh, text test that we do in the routine uh, laboratory we do where we have a code that we can invoice and anything else is not done. Okay, it might have been possible that uh, there are certain parameters where you uh, look at this normally uh, where you can see a strange development but you couldn't say about uh, anything about that yet. Right. Um, we uh, thought a lot about what could be behind it, and we can see now that there is uh, some enamoring uh, with uh, transhumanism, um, which could be promoted with these jabs. Um, that this might be a motive. Um, 
that people dream of this sort of thing, and you have been looking into this increasingly. Yes, maybe I have to explain how uh, someone in my situation, position got to this. What I was interested in is biomedicine and the ethical aspects of it, and I've been working with this for many years. Um, as a person, I'm a bit of a nerd. When I was young, I read science fiction books, and uh, that uh, this idea and this approach and the idea of melting man and machine, that fascinated me, but rather than in a weird way. Um, if you look at um, science fiction, often that is used as a model to answer moral questions. So what is the implication if somebody dies, if nobody dies? What is the implication if we have asexual um, pro uh, reproduction? All of this can be explored in a scientific concept. And like in a theater piece, uh, and what would happen if kind of scenario. And I thought that was it. And now, if we look at it for thousands of years, since there's been culture, of course, the human being tries to extend their own uh, borders. And one of the eldest, I think the eldest artifact of that is a lion person, uh, lion, uh, um, um, a head of a lion on the body of a person, 25,000 years old, from the old Stone Age, even before there was agriculture. Very old artifact. And at that time already, this idea was around that we could extend our own borders, Minotaurus, all of these. And in our times now, this old idea of becoming like the gods is being done by this partly the biological boundaries that we are transpassing, uh, gene editing, CRISPR-Cas9. This is one thing. And uh, that's a, the species limits uh, with chimeras and so on. And the other side is the uh, merging of man and machine. And of course, there are applications that do make sense. For example, cochlea implantates that you have an artificial in-ear um, or people who have no um, hearing system at all. You can build a system that's connected to the brain, allowing a rudimentary hearing. But that's not what this is all about. What this is all about is that the people are radically changed. The human being is radically changed. And what I had thought is it was a bit of a spleen. You play with ideas, but it is dead serious. And um, to explain what this is for the audience who are not familiar with this, there's four core technology, gene technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, computer technology, and nanotechnology. And interestingly, these are the four technologies that are strategically important also in the military area. And the idea is to use these technologies to change the human being in such a way that a new being is created. There is different levels. The first level is that we 
carry the device. We all know that. It's uh, a smartphone. Level one. So level two is we don't carry it or we don't wear wind. It becomes a wearable. Uh, we wear it. It's Google glasses. It's a watch. But all the time, the next levels are the implantables. So we have a chip underneath our skin. And the fourth level is that we have a complete merger of man and machine. And that sounds mad, but it's all written down. It's all documented. The One of the main, uh, Ray Coltsville is one of the main uh, promoters. He was technology chief of uh, Google, now Alphabet. He wrote a couple of books who all have religious titles, Singularity, Transcendency. These are religious ideas that <clears throat> are taken dead seriously now. And the idea is to change the human being in such a way that it becomes a completely new being. And um, he calls it extropian. And the old people, the old human beings, are then uh, superfluous. And we have just heard an important player in this game is Yuva Nora Harari. He is, uh, of course, closely in contact with Klaus Schwab. And with that transmission bell, these ideas are brought about and spread. I got a little clip. I don't know if we can show it, a very short clip of him. After thousands of years, during which humans were the rulers of the, of the world, authority and power will shift away from humans to computers, and most humans will become economically useless and politically powerless. Already today, we are beginning to see the creation of a new class of humans, the useless class. Just as the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century created the new working class, the proletariat, so now the artificial intelligence revolution is beginning to create the useless class. And, and that is actually... Moment, I don't know if you're back Yeah, but that is not... But... Who is useful and who isn't? sinnvoll und nutzvoll, nutz, nützlich und nicht, das liegt natürlich am Betrachter. Genau, das, das ist der Punkt. Should we stay with German? Yes. Let's stick that, to German, yeah. That's the problem. Who decides? That's old, ancient topics, thousands of years. The idea we want to become gods, we want to live eternally. These are ancient stories and what we forget in that is that the original state is a of a, a society is repression and uh, non-freedom what we have now with individual freedom no slavery is historically an exception over a long time and there's always attempts of a couple of groups to explain and find who is more valuable than others and he says it openly useless is the word that he uses and uh, there are other statements where he says well what we do with these useless people well you can keep them calm 
put them in front of a computer game, give them a little basic income, but in the end, that is just a temporary solution. And of course, he doesn't uh, say what the solution is, but in the background, it is the solution to eliminate them. And uh, what is fascinating here, he said this in the TV in Israel, he comes to Germany, he is uh, received at top levels here. I think he was in the chancellor's office here, speaking with the chancellors, lots of talks with the elite in Berlin. He's celebrated as the prophet who takes us to the fourth industrial revolution, to the future. And in the background, there is this idea of this complete um, obsolescence of uh, humankind as we have it today. I think this idea of merging people and computers is black madness for me. If you ask what is consciousness, we have no idea what that is. Is it generated in a central nervous system? Where does it come from, the blood cells? Whatever, surely that's not the case. So where do the thoughts come from? Do they only come from emerging uh, process just because physical chemical reactions are there this happens maybe but we don't know all these questions what uh, memory is where we keep it uh, the memory all these basic questions none of that is answered at all and this allegory that our central nervous system in some way works like a computer does is absurd and uh, in the 17th already, there were many people who have forgotten this. We got the second hype as uh, far as, as AI is concerned. The first one was in the 70s, where there was a MIT Robert Dreyfus um, researcher. He wrote a book on what AI can't do. And at the time, in the 70s, on a theoretical level, he uh, disproved that what we are being presented now is not possible, not because the computers are not quite fast enough, in itself it is not possible because it follows the wrong paradigm. What is called smart intelligence, artificial intelligence is, in, is artificial, but it's not intelligent. It has nothing in common with intelligence. Intelligence is not pure computing power, but by playing with the words, uh, something is suggested and the people are made fearful. And uh, basically, this is about control. It is about about uh, uh, filtering out the useless people. And that is what deeply concerns me. And when I started working into this and looking into it, I thought, they don't think this is serious. I thought, well, that is just, um, they want to play out some ideas. And But it's not the case. It's dead serious, as I said. And the interesting point is, as in many other things that are discussed here, it's all not done in secret. It is documented. Everybody, they write it in their books. They say it on TV, as we've just seen. And still, 
It is a topic which is absolutely unknown or hardly known. I teach at different uh, universities and I had a group uh, of 35 students a little while ago talking about medical ethics ethics, and uh, I talked a bit about these things and then I asked who, for example, has heard the term transhumanism? Nobody did. Who? Klaus Schwab, who knows him? None. World Economic Forum, no. And it was, it was uh, over average, no, not over average uh, trained, but normal. Not one of them. The problem that we have is that we do think that what we work is known. But I have to say that we do tend to forget how unknown this is in the broad population. Um, many people are uh, uh, fill their lives with simple survival, and it sounds far away until it knocks at your front door. And we've had this in, with other debates as well. Um, I don't want to go into that. The gender debate, the same thing. Um, using the language, it sounds far away, very theoretical, has nothing to do with me, until I get a letter from my employer they have to do it. And that's the same thing with these thoughts. They sound far away until we are, we get the letter. Um, it was similar with the vaccination mandates. I said it would never done, would never be done till the authority wrote to the people. And I think this transhumanism, be it if they really do it, if it's an agenda behind it, I don't know, but it has to do with a human being in their core to be made uncertain. Klaus Schwab, in one of his interviews, said in earlier times, if we wanted to manipulate people, we couldn't einfach anders machen, was wir tun. Um, that's what he said. Um, aber jetzt können wir ändern, was wir sind. So hat er das ausgedrückt. Und Das ist der Punkt. Wir können verändern. We can change what we are. Sorry for swapping the language. And we can improve our thoughts. And he tells us what the better thoughts are. And uh, I don't. I don't think personally it's possible to do. But um, it's not the question really. The question is where does he coming from to tell us that that what what we should be and what gives him the right to deal with us in that way and i first of all every human being has a right to be as it is and be left that way and um, this busybody being why do they interfere with our likes when does that impulse come from and that's the absolute transhumanism idea from my point of view is a deeply anti-human agenda it is not a scientific uh, phenomena either it's not science it's scientism <coughs> so 
at scientism, the vocabulary is captured uh, to ideologically or neo transport neo-religious input with uh, a scientific vocabulary. But it is a religious ideology behind it, which is deeply anti-human, not only anti-human, it's anti-life as such. It is against the life as such, not our life only, but the life on planet as in a whole it negates life and that is really the point where i have to say for me when i started to look into this it shocked me and now i see in all of this corona things we see how this is implemented piece by piece and i do see wow they are serious and what we learn from the 20th century, the 20th century is full of uh, failed utopias. Um, what we see only because one thing didn't work, it doesn't make it less dangerous. It, make it makes it even more dangerous. That's what we saw in communism. For example, communism as it was concepted by Lenin, was quite clear that it's not going to work. But he didn't say, okay, we have to get away from this idea because people starve to death. No, but we double the effort. And then we double it again. And then we change something in Cambodia, you end in Cambodia with killing feeds. So uh, that means we, and many people who understood this said, okay, it's not going to work. We don't have to worry about it because it's never going to be successful. I see that in a different way. Well, Professor Cullen, just now that you mentioned scientism, I have one of the most profound uh, knowers of scientism who looked at it from the point of view of globalism and technocracy. That's Patrick Wood who has been looking at this since the 1970s. I have two books with uh, of his with me. And I realized after the last uh, presentation uh, by him, and the day after tomorrow I'll see another one, when he speaks about uh, scientism, this quasi-religious bought science. Uh, when he speaks about scientism, technocracy, and transhumanism, in truth, they're all tools for eugenics. They want to be the better humans. That's what Mr. Ari tries to do. And they want to be the ones who decide who is worth more or less. That is sick, absolutely sick. And that's why the definition of the psychiatrists who we heard um, um, is so fitting. They are psychopaths and sociopaths. If you look at them, um, they externally look like losers. And I'm speculating here, of course, who possibly try to compensate uh, for their own inferiority and to cover it up. But I think it's uh, very important that the background, since about 1850, I think 
uh, the survival of the fittest isn't even from Charles Darwin. Um, that was someone else who invented it because he referred it to animals and plants, but not humans. And this was then corrupted. And in 1906, the uh, British Eugenic Society was uh, built out of it. And then a few years later, in the Bay Area here in California, the American uh, Eugenic Society. So that's the background. That is the real risk. And that's why you're completely right. This is anti-human, anti-creation, uh, really. Uh, that's how far it goes. And it can't work. Who was the man who said it back in the 70s that it won't work? I, I didn't. I missed the name. I think his name is Roger Lederer Dreyfus. Uh, it wasn't about transhumanism, but about uh, artificial intelligence. I uh, didn't uh, bring it along here. Uh, we, I, I have notes um, that I brought along um, with a PowerPoint presentation. But back then, he showed that artificial intelligence won't work. But um, that doesn't um, render it obsolete. This, this uh, eugenic uh, impulse is very old. So, if you look, take a look at nature. You can look. You can uh, look at nature as the uh, fight uh, for the survival of the fittest. You can see it as a cooperation as well, because nature is really a huge uh, cooperation where everything interacts and can only work um, in symbiosis, and. Of course, there is a certain um, selection, but it's this survival of the fittest is an, uh, subordinate to cooperation. So what's overarching, as it were, is the positive cooperation. But um, uh, Mr. Harari's book is called Homo Deus. Um, well, you have to say about that. And what you said, Mr. Filmich, is quite correct. Uh, with Darwin, people who have problems with themselves um, extract what resonates with their own deficiency and then uh, project it to their books. So Mr. Harari projects his own problems into his books and then he encounters a society of uh, all these pathologies, um, uh, isolation, lack of uh, drive, and um, then it uh, encounters a society that is about to collapse, and then they think, oh, that must be the right approach. What we are being put through is the result of a decade of symbiosis between different fields that we as human beings have created on one side we see that there are people who sell us stuff that we don't want that we don't need we could live in a different way but they just uh, talk us into stuff uh, saying we need these cars we need all, all that and and all these cars that can drive alone and we need all that they build machines that we can uh, fill our houses with household appliances we've been doing that for decades and we have been conditioned that way and they have the f success experience with that and that's what drives them now it's the cake is eaten and if we have to come with something else 
that's it get, things get interesting is where they want to do something is where they are fearful is that they may get sick and die and that is the what feeds them and that's what corona does at the moment and you can make massive amount of money you can put anything onto the people with that trick and i think that's the new business model that mr gates and his colleagues have developed and um, that is very helpful for these globalists in order to uh, live out their fantasies for society but for decades we've been going down this road even though I think if it was only a question of earning money, um, it would be the second worst scenario. I believe that, and I can see in the world of business, um, I see people, when it comes to exclude um, unvaccinated or, or untreated people from business, um, well, then I see that the businessmen who are harder than this table, um, they do that. They risk their own business. They're so deeply involved that they uh, question their own existence, what they normally wouldn't do. So I'd say if it was the money alone, it would be bad enough. But it would be the second worst thing. But the conviction. Oftentimes, it's even more destructive, and that is my experience um, that I made uh, quite frequently. Whether that happens at the high level of Bill Gates or, or whatever, I don't know. But I uh, can see this religious uh, exaltation that is very dangerous to us. But, uh, Wolfgang, go ahead. I, I was uh, invited to Commerzbank to event uh, on stem cells and they said what do you think i was asked i was a new cat commission at the time uh they asked me do you think this is gonna do something can you do it is it worth investing that was the question i thought that, that was interesting uh these people who try to estimate now where to invest and where not where just uh, uh whip a little cream at the time uh, they knew it and uh, they should know what's going on now but but these people like this harare who believe that they are in control now do they believe that they will uh, wind up uh, in a hive mind, an elitist sort of a hive mind, or do they realize that they would like to live as humans with optimized uh, limbs maybe, but that they want to continue as uh, individuals and it's only the others who are being controlled and um, uh, suppressed, or is that their own dream to become part and parcel of this group? Well, from McCotswell, we hear that he takes 200 pills a day and he wants to extend the end of his life uh, to see the solution. Last year, Jeff Bezos from Amazon and Yuri Miller, he's a, a Russian uh, oligarch, they founded a company um, and staffed it with international CRISPR people, gene technologies who did the schmears. And now the idea is uh, that um, the they found that the the life expectancy of a mouse can be extended by changing its genes. And of course, that has risks. 
and it's not directly applicable to human beings, but they spend massive amounts of monies. And what I noted with these two gentlemen, uh, they are two in my age, they show shaved their heads. And I see that people who want to, um, do not want to admit that they get older, especially these people like Klaus Schwab, who are over 80, their time is running up. And if one billion of euros, I think most people can uh, about imagine twice the annual income that they have. Above, it's a lot of money. So one billion euros is so much money, it's endless. They have endless money, but what don't they have? They don't have endless time. And their, their clock is ticking away. And of course, they are people who are completely on this side, on the material side. They are looking for their um, freedom on this side, liberty on this side now. And that is what brought us into different ideologies over the last centuries and run us into ruins, cost hundreds of millions of lives to find a utopia on this side we can save ourselves and that is something which in principle paired with this eugenic thought that we are homo deus we can create the better human we can make it we can take go to salvation uh, that is what I think they do from desperate, they're desperate, and they're desperate to believe this. And if it were only the money, that would be bad, but half as bad, because what options do they have? That is where I see the big risk. But the idea then would be uh, to create this brave new world um, until the useless eaters have uh, dissipated and then you have a small community, much smaller community where everybody holds a place that uh, is due them. Yes, and there are absurd uh, outcomes. We got the word humanish, human Amish, from the Amish people. Uh, these are different groups in America who reject modern technologies, who, by the way, did not have any impression from Corona. They made it perfectly and are very successful because they were the only group of people who carried on and um, are very successful in agriculture. But the idea is the human being could um, be put into reserves um, and kept there you uh, to look at. These are the humanish, humanish people. Well, you could that could be an historic coup, really. And try everything and look for a nice island and then happy days. Yes, and uh, we're, we're laughing about this now, but that's the interesting point, really. It's eine alberne Idee, die grundsätzlich schon mal albern ist. Uh, it doesn't make sense in itself. It's a contradiction in itself. Um, it's, it's mad, but still Ivan Uhari comes to Berlin and is celebrated by the official Berlin, portrayed in the major newspapers. And this guy will show us the way to the future? And here we really have to be 
vigilant they're, because they're not going to shy away, though, because it's not going to, we know it's gonna, not going to work. And uh, we have heard uh, about the vaccination campaigns and children. It's so obvious that it is do doing harm and no help. Do they stop it? No. Now they are going for the infants. And uh, that is really the point. If you hear uh, uh, just a few keywords, Industrial Revolution 4.0, uh, that is what they're looking at. If we hear digitization, that is what they're going at. Not right now, but on medium term. And uh, if we hear digitization in the health system, well, what may that be? And uh, <clears throat> the basic idea is actually this complete merge and the complete dissolution of being human. And we have uh, seen so many developments where the human being is destroyed, and now they are not only be to be destroyed in, his ident in their identity, but in their being. And the idea is this is old, hygienic idea, we will create a better human being. Almost Sovieticos is what they had in the Soviet Union. If we've got that person, the system's going to work. And uh, now we want homo deus, no less. And uh, we have to be alert here. That's not uh, a, a fringe thing. Um, if we look where these guys come from, they come from AIT, Yale, Harvard. That's the commanding guys. The, they are at the top of the game, and they do what we do long before governments do. And interestingly, Yuval Noahari is the uh, muse of Karl Schwab, Klaus Schwab. He gets inspired by him. Like uh, William Borte Gates got Maud Gom, uh, so Zahir, uh, <clears throat> a poet, gets inspired by the woman around it. So we talk about Bill Amanda Gates Foundations. That's the poor guys, no, no ideas. The ideas come from elsewhere. Before an idea, an ideology, there is an idea, and this, these people provide the ideas for these things, and they are deeply anti-humane, and uh, <clears throat> that's why I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to talk about this here today. Well, we will need a lot more time, uh, Professor Collin, because this topic will be the game changer, just like the boat account will be the game changer, because when people realize what, uh, what you just said, that this obviously a crazy Harari is um, being um, um, courted by uh, these uh, predators and many people uh, do it against better knowledge because they're paid for it. I can only hope that the a larger part of humanity, um, at least the people that I know, are not um, susceptible to this insanity uh, that these people are playing only among themselves when they push this agenda. I think 
if you look at Hollywood, all the movies, it's predictive programming. If you, so once you've got it, you see it everywhere. You see how these ideas are brought to the people by that. And we can also ordinary people, Marvel, Marvel series, the normal person doesn't count anything. Everybody has to, got to have the superpowers before becoming interesting as a person at all. And in my naive naivety, I thought, well, we just play with these ideas to think them out. But that's not the case. And uh, it's really, as you say, Mr. Fulmish, these elites, uh, somebody like Mr. Borla from Pfizer, he's uh, he's not uh, the brightest candle on the on the cake. Uh, surely not. Um, of course, he has a certain uh, business intelligence. Of course, he's got a high IQ. But being this super smart, creative person, he's definitely not going to be. If he were, he wouldn't have become the boss of Pfizer, where there's zero creativity needed. And so you need your inspirations. And uh, they have these diabolic muses. And Harari is one of these. And they pop up again and again in the history. There's always the inspiration. Where does the idea come from? And then these ideas are implemented and turned into the ideologies by the powerful, because the powerfuls don't have the ideas. Uh, having too many ideas stops you from becoming powerful, because you are work with yourself alone. Towards this emperor who uh, wanted to have uh, all the money and uh, give me all the money and I'll, uh, I'll make the most beautiful uh, clothes and uh, that the emperor thought that was going through the streets and everybody thought he was wearing uh, beautiful clothes and then the... Um, the child said, you're naked, but you're naked. Then people saw. Yeah. Yes, and after it all pops up, the emperor still doesn't believe it. Uh, because he's the emperor. He can't be as stupid. So... And the people who um, dance around, they're still well, with them. That's interesting thought place where this comes from. However, if it uh, spills down to us, it is broken down and the university um, go through it, the authorities implemented, then things get dangerous. And we, you said so, uh, this uh, belief in technology is a stupid uh, belief in technology. People who can't operate a computer, that's highly explosive. We keep developing. When we develop something, we keep developing it further. It gets more complicated. It keeps going on and on. Yes, quite right. Well, um, I think it's interesting, actually, this is about emotionality of the human beings. Uh, love for your neighbor and so on. All of these things have to be carved out of the human being because probably that's not going to be very useful. Mr. Um, Harari looks um, 
very slow in uh, emotion. Maybe he takes different shapes at times, uh, but that's going to be a threat for the system because that can't be calculated and that has the potential for explosions. And probably that's why they've got the idea that you don't have any sex at all um, because, or any gender at all um, because the love between human beings has a big power and probably that obstructs the system. Well, I believe that uh, this is based, uh, the, the term artificial intelligence itself is based on a misunderstanding on, and on a pun. Because artificial intelligence is only artificial, it has nothing to do with that intelligence. Just like intelligence has nothing to do with uh, computing power. And just because a, a car can drive autonomously, it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. You can uh, show it that uh, a computer can play chess very well. In the chess game, you know exactly what can happen and you can calculate it as well, uh, very well. In the real world, you don't know exactly what can happen. There's all sorts of things that can happen. And of course, there is something like intuition and intuition and anything that makes life interesting is into uh, what's uh, intuition it has nothing uh, to do uh, even the idea to live forever in a computer that is gruesome that idea and in the western tradition people who look at the eastern tradition um, it's always reincarnation they want to keep back and live forever and in the eastern tradition it is to finally get out of this treadmill and I, I don't want to exaggerate this, but it, of course, um, lacks this idea of transcendency. I believe that we humans, without a reference point outside of us and higher than us, we start uh, thinking in weird terms. And this uh, being caught in uh, our material world and then to be confronted with your own mortality, and that is, of course, a huge topic in the context of uh, COVID, um, mortality. Um, so we have super rich people who don't have many ideas, who are ap approaching death and then Harari comes along and says, here's the solution. You can freeze your head in uh, liquid nitrogen, or I can modify myself uh, genetically like Bezos, uh, etc. But these are psychopathologies. Instead of saying, um, guy, you have to chill a bit and uh, calm down a bit, calm down a bit. Yes, I, I, am, I would think that's one of the problems that I can see. We laugh about it, but it is dead serious. And I hope I was a bit um, shocked when I asked nobody. Um, I hope that uh, people must hear about these ideas and understand their uh, dangerousness. There's so many people who love their cars. But there's no car that loves its human, its owner. Oh, yes, there was one. Well, it's trapped in advertising. 
No, there's this movie, it's called Christine. I think it's about a car, but as you say, Wolfgang, the person loves the car and the car gets dangerous. I think the, the author of the story is Stephen King. Anyway, Professor Cullen, I saw a short clip, we don't have it with us now, by a German who has been living in Australia for many years, uh, Bernie is his name, and he reported about a marriage that he attended using the opportunity to speak all the young people. And just what you just said, he experienced the same thing. Nobody knows about transhumanism. Nobody knows Klaus Schwab. Nobody knows about the Great Reset. So they're all taken by surprise all steamrolled, and that's why it's so much more important that we uh, should mention these things. Yes, for us it's important. We say if you want to win over a customer, you have to meet the customer at least seven times. So people think, I told him everything the first time, the second time doesn't count. But the human being doesn't work that way. They, human beings work on repetition. So you think, I'm fed up with it, but the other person hears it for the first time. So us who try to uh, spread the news, uh, spread the truth, we can repeat things. Um, because we think, because we are so incited and livid, we really underestimate. Many people have so much. I, I think they get so much input from the other side, from morning to dawn, uh, from that uh, they really get this powered in. So we can repeat as much as we like just to penetrate it a bit. And I do think sometimes we think it's all been said. Yes, it has all been said, but it has been has to be repeated. Our world is made of um, beaten paths um, through the opportunities that we have. We have to create our own paths that we um, go. It's the same with our uh, brain cells. They grow when they're used, just like the muscle cells. So everything that we use becomes stronger. And if we communicate with each other, it becomes easier the next time over and more people understand it. And you can see this positively. You say it the first time and you thought they have forgotten it. They didn't. They just uh, remembered a bit of it and the second time and then at some point they remember completely. And uh, for example, <clears throat> my daughter, I'm from Ireland and I spoke English with her. She always answered in German. 11 years, no English word. 11 years of frustration for me. German with her mother and German with me, I thought, oh God. And when she turned 11, we went to Ireland and then she spoke she spoke fluent, fluent English and said, what is this? Well, why have you not talked English to me? You understand, German was her answer. So, uh, what I want to say, even if we do think we don't get the people, we do get them, and uh, it stays in them. And, of course, you need a certain 
uh, eagerness and, and, and decision to carry on for 11 years. But for our work, of course, we can't give up. We have to repeat and repeat and repeat until it'll get to the people. Even if we think it uh, vanishes, um, it doesn't go all the way down, but it doesn't reach the perception level in the person. <clears throat> well, I guess this uh, system that they've uh, come up with, this singular singularity where you merge with machines, that is a strangely rudimentary and limited uh, understanding. We, we do have the singularity already in a way. Uh, sometimes you have the, the feeling that, oh, I'll call someone and then they uh, don't feel well. Everybody has had these telepathic uh, experiences. It's something that we could um, focus more on. We could promote it by focusing on it, on this uh, human aspect. And they do something um, amputated, uh, something in uh, only merging in this small area. It is very pathologic, I really have to say. And the singularity is the singularity means the point in time where the sum of the machine intelligence uh, outsmarts the human be the human intelligence. That's what this point refers to. But actually, the point is we do know with uh, with trees that a there has been research that if a tree is attacked by pests or parasites and there is trees other trees of the same type kilometers away all of a sudden start to produce chemicals that makes makes them resistant against the parasites that these other trees are attacked by and this is no uh, garbage there's a beautiful book by Mr. Nizani about biocommunication. So hardcore research on this. So, before Robert Maxwell described the radio waves, there were radio waves, but the idea to talk to someone over a distance, everybody would have thought madness. But, of course, it did exist. And uh, so, I don't want to talk about this telepathic uh, uh, capabilities, but really, we live life is interwoven in waves we do not understand and nature works as a uniform creative corporation and this competition idea is taken out and the competition is only part of the corporation and we amongst each other of course are connected in ways that we do not understand and here we deliberately to get people out of their own problems they uh, take to society and we as society have to say uh, work your problems out elsewhere or with yourself or well go to a desert for three weeks and come up with the solution but leave us in peace but that doesn't happen and it doesn't happen because our society, many people are without any uh, holdback and uh, the system is really on its last button and people want to get a kick to get a bit more for forward. And uh, for us, we have to say, sorry, we're out. We don't want that. 
That's the uh, famous image of the plank where the uh, one person is standing on the plank above a um, precipice um, holding a gun and 20 other people are standing on the plank and um, he threatens the people on the, uh, the other 20 and if they all stepped away then uh, he would just fall down so we need to cooperate that reminds me of a friend who talked in a speech last uh, week uh, he said last year we were on the verge of abyss today we've taken a step forward well with uh, telepathy i was uh, thinking we uh, use the telephone to talk to other uh, continents, but what uh, we uh, retain of those uh, t phone conversations is sometimes no more than telepathy. So, but where we are, where are we? Where is the other side? Do they think their thing is going to work? Well, <laughs> well, I had a conversation about that yesterday, and the question is. Is there a completely cynical group at the next level who uh, uh, play this game without knowing that it can work um, and everybody's on board? I do believe that everybody is on board because I think that this elite, um, because I'm not uh, so convinced of their intelligence and creativity. And I believe that this group has um, reached the end of, it, of the line in so many ways, the economic system and other systems, and they're looking desperately for ideas. They're often elderly people, and they're happy if there is anything, any straw, no matter how flimsy it may be, that they can grab, that they can hold on to. That is my view. I, I can't be sure, of course. But that seems to make more sense than the idea that there's this um, hyper-cynical plan. That's my view. But it doesn't really matter. Uh, particularly in the 20th uh, century, we had crazy ideas, no end. And always, each of these utopias uh, led to a heap of dead bodies. Heaps, really. Take Cambodia. Anyone wearing uh, glasses was considered an intellectual. People were um, driven to the fields from the uh, cities. I think a quarter of the uh, population died within a few years, and society has not yet recovered. And you wonder, how is that possible? Children denouncing their parents, etc. So yes, it's possible for entire societies to be um, captured by such totalitarian ideas. And uh, if you look at Matthias Desmet, um, um, he explains this. And uh, this is a real danger. It's not, uh, not a joke. And the people who are caught in this are so caught in it um, for instance, Thomas Kuhn introduced uh, the idea of the paradigm change to uh, science. For instance, uh, Newton's um, physics to uh, relativity. What happens, uh, it's rare for the adepts of the old technology uh, saying, oh, I uh, was wrong. The problem has to be solved biologically, so um, the old uh, guard has to die out, and then the new ones will adopt the new findings. And I think that people like Klaus Schwab are 
deeply rooted in this system. And the idea is that new ideas must come so that when they uh, die out, um, that the next generation might be a bit closer to reality, maybe, hopefully. So that's why the fight about the children, because nothing else can grow up on that. That's exactly the point, exactly. Sovereignty uh, about uh, over uh, the children's beds. Who said that? That's that's really it. And that is why. Well, we obviously have to oppose this uh, humanity, human rights. Uh, right to life, uh, very importantly, these positive impulses uh, have to come from us. It's much easier, of course. This is easier to uh, what they do is a complete perversion. Well, I, I enjoyed to talk about bioethics with you. Well, thank you. Me, me too. We'll do more of that, Professor Cullen. We have to finish off with three cool things. One is my favorite comedian, J.P. Cirrus, who explains the world to us in his way, is simply hilarious. And then we've got a song, very good, which is Wake Up, called Wake Up, Mo Enton from Sweden together with an investigative journalist, Ola Dommegaard, and a country song from Michael Ray to finish out, Whiskey and Rain. I think that is going to be a wonderful closing of the day. Uh, let's you go how I'm happy. Professor Cullen, it was marvelous. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss this. Maybe we can discuss this at greater length in a different context um, and structure it differently. But thanks for having me. Okay, so then I'll take the closing words. I think we brought up a lot of the feed, food for thought. I think the last uh, discussion was very inspiring to talk about the basics of human beings. Uh, takes us to the end of a very interesting session. And at this point, always, we can only do our work if we are funded properly. So again, we've got a new bank account and we'll be happy, full support. We don't get any of that money, but the people who help us behind the scenes have to live of something. Uh, beyond that, a uh, wonderful weekend and a good Friday night for you. And uh, we'll meet again next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Hi, I'm the guy that supports the current thing. And right now, the current thing that I support with all my heart is Ukraine. Uh, the, the flag's upside down. Really? Oh, I thought, the, I thought the yellow went on top. Anytime there's a single narrative being pervasively broadcast with no room for dissent, you know it's got to be true. I get on board real quick. Here's my new profile pic. It's been a long couple of years of tirelessly virtue signaling about different things, <sighs> but I'm not going to slow down. Stay at home to slow the spread. <laughs> I still haven't left. <laughs> Two weeks for life, baby. Then it was defund the police, then build back better with Hunter's dad, then get the shot, get the booster, and then get another booster, and then get the third booster, 
And now it's all about supporting Ukraine. Yeah, I'm starting a movement to defund the trees because trees are still growing in Russia, and that's not right. I've taken painstaking efforts to investigate the Ukraine-Russia situation. 100% of my research involves me sitting in front of the TV with my eyes open and my thinking suspended. Now, surprisingly, what my research has concluded is true is exactly what the news has told me is true. To be informed, you gotta turn the TV on and your mind off. This situation is not complex. Here's what I've learned. Ukraine is good and Russia is bad. It's that simple. There's really no nuance to this situation. Hey, John, will you denounce Russia? Why? Because I'll burn your house down if you don't. All right, Russians are bad people. Thank you. Oh yeah, we should totally go to war, especially as long as it's other people's children going over to die. But World War III, think about it. There's no downside and everyone loves a trilogy. When I'm not washing my own thinking from my brain with the latest breaking news, I spend a lot of time trolling companies online to get them to suspend operations in Russia. Yeah, thanks to people like me putting relentless anger-fueled pressure on them, McDonald's isn't serving people in Russia anymore. Devastating! Like, what's gonna happen to the Russians when they're not constantly eating the most unhealthy food on the planet? <laughs> It'll probably get weaker. Dude, we got Netflix to stop streaming in Russia. Just gonna check and see if Putin surrendered yet. Oh, and Visa, MasterCard, and American Express have frozen all transactions on the Russians. <laughs> that is awesome. Preventing innocent people from buying things like food? That will definitely stop the Russian military, eventually. It's brilliant, just think about it. The Russians are ruled by an evil dictator who doesn't care about them. So by harming the innocent people that Putin doesn't care about, it'll probably get him to open his heart and stop invading Ukraine. And advocating for this kind of thing definitely shows everyone how great of a person I am. Oh, I'm a good person. So I fully support putting innocent Russians through increased hardship because I'm told to think it's the right thing to do. We need more love in this world. I hate Russians. And if you don't hate Russians, then you are clearly not hateful enough to be qualified as a good person in my book. Oh, cool. BlackRock just suspended all operations in Russia. <laughs> when an evil company that's single-handedly trying to destroy the world as we know it boycotts Russia, then you know it's the right thing to do. Mathematically speaking, here's the results of all my I support Ukraine efforts. People in Ukraine actually being helped, zero. People online knowing they should think more highly of me, 10. But from my past, I support the current thing efforts. I've learned that math is racist. So these numbers are completely irrelevant. So I'm gonna keep pushing the needle of narcissism forward because Ukraine needs me too. Zelensky is my hero, brave. <laughs> Just sending out a tweet. I'm inspired by all the heroic things the news tells me he does. As the I support the current thing guy, I've put in a lot of effort the past two years advocating for forcing people to stay at home, cover their faces, and advocating for mandates that eliminate personal choice when it comes to someone's body. Sacrificing freedom and democracy for the greater good is the right thing to do. And if you don't think so, then you just want people to die. And I'll tell you this, we need to send our military to Ukraine to protect freedom and democracy. 
If you don't think so because you don't want people to die, then you're a far-right extremist Putin science denier. I'll be honest with you. With the whole pandemic, I eventually stopped trusting the media. I could see through their propaganda to their lies and corruption. After two years of lies, they lost my trust. But they wouldn't share anything other than the unequivocal truth about Russia and Ukraine, right? They wouldn't have any incentive to perpetuate any sort of propaganda. And I don't even think they'd be capable of such a thing, even if they wanted to. It's not like you can convince millions of people to believe a lie. I don't think that's possible. People aren't that dumb. I don't know what it is, but I feel so much safer when people agree with me about the current thing. Dude, Starbucks just cut off Russia. This is so helpful. Do you think it's possible to cut off the air supply to Russia? But when people have a different perspective about the current thing than the one me and the media share, I feel so unsafe that I go into a fit of rage and want to smear the person and destroy their life. All in an effort to help Ukraine. I'm pretty sure mass formation psychosis only works with COVID. Hey, uh, why aren't you wearing any blue or yellow? Dude, wouldn't it be great if we started taking the people who don't support Ukraine and locking them into camps? Some people say Zelensky is an abusive dictator himself who's locked his political rivals in prison. No, based on my personal experience in Ukraine by watching the news, I know this is simply not what I'm willing to believe. It's clearly Russian misinformation, probably found on Hunter's laptop which also doesn't exist based on what the media that I trust has told me. Hunter sure does love Ukraine though, doesn't he? Supporting Ukraine with every ounce of my being is something I will never stop doing because it's so near and dear to my heart. Unless a new thing comes up that'll help me stand taller as a lamb amongst sheep. Hey there, my friend.